Well, hello and welcome to episode number 357 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's news pack show, uh, we see the A321 XLR that needs a extra padding on its rear end. Uh, EasyJet's bookings go crazy and the NTSB are dismantling the TWA Flight 800 reconstruction. In the military news this week, the Air Force finally has its first new AT-60E Wolverine light attack aircraft. Uh, the problem-plagued KC-46 begins taking on limited operational roles, and a flight of B-1 bombers gets cold up in Norway. Well, they should have been here a few weeks ago. Anyway, joining me across the town in the PTK Master Suite studio is, of course, the master of all things round and slidey. It's Matt Smith. I really wasn't sure where you were going with that for a brief moment. Round and slidey. I don't know what to do with that information. Oh, dear. Thanks for that. <laughs> Hello, mate. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, see. You've got, the, you've got the picture from last week behind you, Matt. I thought you'd have changed it. No, I liked it. I liked it. Oh, a lot. Okay. Yeah. You, you're, a biz jet, you're a biz jet guy. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Taste. Well, if, if you're going to, you know, if you hate flying and you're going to, and you're going to be made to do some flying, then expensive it, taste. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I know where Gemma gets it from. That's not anyway. my fault. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, joining us as well this week, it is the man who, well, let's put it this way, he does love the extreme cable management it is of course our av tech guru evel bounds yes hello and i've been booking some flights this week what you believe. whoa hang uh, on slightly controversially <laughs> but so uh, that was hard work because i was on the uh, the ba gold line for about an hour and a half i've got 10 uh, future travel vouchers to use up uh, i was trying to use that over about four flights and it was all going terribly well i was just about to finish the whole thing off and then I got cut off and I had to start again. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Arduous. Where, where, so, where are you going, though? What, what did you uh, get going booking? to uh, the Algarve at the end of June, all Ooh. being well. And then Fuerteventura for my 60th birthday in November, as long as <clears throat> we're all allowed, you know. Of course, right, OK. Lots of caveats. Yeah. Um, but they're all being pretty good. You can still cancel tickets and change them around and all the rest of it. So... We'll see how we go. Mm. I wonder whether you'll need a uh, COVID yeah, was... passport, Nev. Mm, sorry? I wonder whether they need one of those passports. Oh, yes. They mm. might do. They might mm. do. So we'll have to see. Well, oh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> That'd be good. We yeah. need, to get, uh, need to get on holiday. All of us do. So uh, we are missing our Mundo this week. Uh, unfortunately, he's currently tied up with Reno Air Race coordination. Wow. He just pushes the boat out every week. Uh, but he'll be joining us a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but uh, he did send in some pictures of a flight that he took yesterday uh, to the Wright Brothers' first flight airport on the outer banks of North Carolina. And it's safe to say, stunning photos indeed. It's a very sunny day. A bit like here, actually. It's been very... It's a very sunny day. The sky looks amazing with those pictures absolutely what what a real iconic location that is it really is oh my goodness it's uh as a, he's, he's, he's he's got a very cool job hasn't he armando has probably got the coolest job <laughs> out, well, out of all of us to yeah, be fair absolutely um without question yeah definitely but uh we do have a special guest on the show this week and nev 
who is joining us on this week's show? Well, we do, and uh, I'm absolutely delighted that he's agreed to uh, join us on the show. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, his YouTube channel, uh, Rory On Air, and uh, Rory, of course, uh, has just qualified as a commercial helicopter pilot as well, and he joins us now from his home. Hello, Rory. How are you doing? Evening, everybody. Very nice to be here. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be asked on this show, and uh, yeah, great. Looking forward to having a chat with you all. Fantastic stuff. Well, that's great, Rory, and uh, can't wait to speak to you, which we will do in just a moment. So we've got uh, a weekly roundup here to uh, to just bring you this week, and uh, this is kind of uh, this is quite recent news, actually, isn't it, guys? This is uh, this is quite you know, news that broke today, I think. Uh, this news. And uh, this is uh, from the IT, yeah, yesterday this came, ITSecurityGuru.org. Uh, the Canadian plane manufacturer, um, who we shan't mention because Matt will go excited, um, <laughs> uh, has today revealed it has suffered uh, a security breach in a press release. Uh, go on, Matt, say it. Bombardier. Thank you. <laughs> They disclosed that some of their data had been published on the dark web portal operated by the Klopp ransomware gang. An initial investigation revealed that an unauthorized party accessed, and my phone just, I should have that on silent. My party, that's the group chat as well. That's one of you lot. It's me. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The uh, ransomware guy. Anyway, initial investigation revealed that an unauthorized party accessed and extracted data by exploiting a vulnerability affecting a third-party file transfer application, which was running on purpose-built service isolated from the main Bombardier IT network. In December 2020, a zero-day attack in the Acelion FTA software was discovered by a hacking group who exploited the vulnerability to steal sensitive data. It has been confirmed by Acelion that 300 of its customers were running this software, 100 of which got attacked and 25 of which had data stolen. Bombardier was added to their list on Monday. Uh, Bombardier has said that the leak uh, on the site does not include personal data. However, design documents for various Bombardier aircraft and plane parts have been shared. As a result, some of the manufacturer's private intellectual property is being offered as a free download on the dark web. Wow. Okay. Don't know what to do with that information. Uh, No, the message I sent you, Carlos, was please can you turn your microphone up a bit, Ben? All right, okay, (laughs) thanks, yeah. Never mind, um, you're part of the fun. <laughs> Matt, you're, you're, I mean, Matt, you and uh, never these sort of computer tech whizzers on here. Just for a quick one, what what is this dark web? Ooh, right, okay. Are you going to handle this In one brief... or am I, Nev? Oh, well, you can. Lovely, um... okay. Uh, long story short, Carlos, don't go there. Uh, okay, right. <laughs> essentially, it's, it, it's, not, it's not somewhere that you want to go. Uh, absolutely not. It's... Uh, okay. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll stay off that. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, time to say hello to everyone in the chat room this week. Just arising my browser history. Um, they're going to say a big hello to Chris Marsh. Uh, we've got Lee Davies in there. Graham Haley, Lane Street. Can't do a show without Lane. Uh, Richard Adams. We have got. And he's scrolling down. Stephen H. Hello to you, Stephen. Captain Al. Lovely to see you, Captain Al, in the chat room this week. Uh, Sturman's also in there. We've got Pilot Pip also in the chat room this week captain cruz hello to you captain cruz masher's in there hello to you masher uh, rich p hello to you rich uh, masher uh, aaron p as well 
Uh, Nick Codling, hello to you, Nick. Mark Priestley, Evan Shue, my God, it's early where you are. And uh, Rory on air in there as well. Never heard of him. Keeping an eye on uh, that, uh, our guest this week. So big hello to everyone who has joined us in the YouTube viewing chat room today. Uh, Don't forget, if you are listening to us via an audio uh, podcast on your player, don't forget to take yourselves over to our YouTube page and hit the subscribe button and the bell icon, which is right next door to be notified when we're live and recording new episodes, because we want you in the chat room. You, you like mi- we have got Micah. I was going to say, you can't miss out Uncle Micah. There, there will be hell to pay. <laughs> no, no, can't miss Micah. Our, our Uncle Micah has joined us, obviously, in the chat room, which is always good to see you in there, Micah. So, moving on, then, to our guest, Nev. Do you want to uh, kick things off with our yes, special Yes, well, guest? you saw him a bit earlier on, and uh, Rory is a commercial helicopter and fixed-wing microlight pilot. He's also an award-winning radio presenter, multimedia producer, and voiceover artist. In 2019, after more than a decade at the BBC working as a studio director, he quit his job and took a leap of faith towards his dream of becoming a professional helicopter pilot. Well, after 14 months of intensive integrated uh, training, which is a process he's very kindly shared with the public each step of the way on his YouTube channel, and he's now fully qualified to do that, and he joins us now on the show. Well, hello again, Rory. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to getting into some... uh helicopters and aeroplanes chat with you guys well yes there's already been some abuse in the in the chat room for from our resident a320 captain uh, al uh, and who says that rory has exchanged a lawnmower engined washing line for something even more dangerous a helicopter <laughs> yeah I, i'm looking at the chat now it's not my pr i'm not lucky enough to have one but i did see that comment <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's it's right. it just gives you an idea of the, of the tone of, of how things might go. <laughs> mind you, you see, mind you, I'm a little bit in Al's camp here because, and this is one thing that I'm hoping to have a myth or twelve uh, debunked from because you know I'm convinced that uh, uh, helicopters essentially de- de- you know defy science and logic and were basically made at Hogwarts. I can't get my head around them. I really can't. Actually, Matt, just uh, just just read out Mike's one because that is brilliant. What Mike has just put in. The oh, is this the question? Or yeah, uh, yes, yeah, right. Yes, it says basically a question for Rory a helicopter pilot friend of mine once told me that learning to fly a helicopter is very similar to learning to balance um, on a beach ball wow okay (laughs) any truth in that do you know what actually there really is to begin with when when I first started it I I honestly thought there must be something wrong with this aircraft because it's just not it's not doing what I expected it to do at all. And after a while, you start to realise that, no, it's not the aircraft that's at fault, it's you. Um, and eventually, you know, after much considerable consternation and time spent and patience of an instructor sat there poised, ready to sort of snatch it back from you, when it inevitably goes awry in the hover, you do, you do sort of get it. But yeah, the beach ball analogy. I, I, I think the first time I had a go in an R22, I remember thinking it was like a, a round-bottomed glass bowl in water that had no, no keel, so it would just <laughs> you know sort of loll around willy-nilly under the, the whim of the breeze. But it's not so bad now I've got used to it. Wow. Uh, absolute uh, classic. Yes, that's a very good description, I think, that, isn't it? But, uh, well, let's go right the way back to when you uh, were a little boy, uh, Roy. So where did your love of aviation come from uh, in the first place? 
Well, I was um, fortunate to grow up on a remote island in uh, in Scotland, in the Orkney Islands, on the east side of Orkney. It's called Ausgerry, so I'm named after the island. Uh, it was just my family that lived on it, so my uh, parents and two younger brothers, and uh, we had a flock, we still do, my parents still farm a flock of rare breed, rare breed North Ronaldsey sheep. Um, and it was a, a wonderful upbringing, um, you know, lots of outdoors, lots of fresh air, lots of exercise, lots of, uh, you know, stuff washed up on the beach to play with and, you know, things to get involved in on the farm. But it was also pretty quiet. There was just our family. So there wasn't a lot of interaction with other people for large chunks of the year. And aside from, you know, maybe the odd aeroplane that would occasionally fly over or the odd fishing boat that would go past, there wasn't a lot of particularly exciting activity until once or twice a year, the Northern Lighthouse Board would turn up to do maintenance work on the lighthouse that's on the end of the island. And to do that maintenance, they would normally arrive with a ship, which they would moor about a mile off the, off the coast. And they would put their guys and their equipment ashore via shuttle runs done with a Bolco 105 helicopter. Um, and I just, from the age of about six onwards, I remember being utterly captivated by that beautiful, bright red, noisy, jet fuel smelling machine where the pilots would get out wearing flight suits and their bars and all the rest of it. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing ever. And... I'm going to do that. And I remember distinctly thinking that is what I want to do for a job. And, and it never went. It's, it never went. Every time they came, I was obsessed with it. I'd watch every single move they made. I just, you know, like some of you have mentioned earlier in, in a jokey way, you know, I thought it was a magic carpet. I still do, to be <laughs> honest, even though I understand how it works, there is an element of magic to it. When you look at them sort of sat shut down with their rotors kind of drooping and, you know, they do look a bit ungainly and you think, oh, how's that ever going to get in the air? But it's just it's just fantastic. And it still captures my excitement just as much now at the age of 32, whenever I see or hear a helicopter as, as it did when I was a little boy. Yeah. So so growing up there then, I mean, presumably aviation w- was quite necessary to to get to and from the mainland. Well, yes, it was. I mean, we we never had the option of going by an aircraft from Ausgerry. Um, it was always small boats. But, you know, once you got onto the Orkney mainland, you could fly down to Inverness or Aberdeen or whatever. Um, we also had a, an Islander aircraft, little twin-engined turboprop that would do, um, you know, trips to the North Isles, um, you know, that were around us. So we saw that little aeroplane occasionally. Um, I actually won once won a competition at school for drawing an utterly terrible picture of it, but they they seemed to like it because they said it sort of captured the excitement of it, even though I could see other people's pictures were much more true likeness to it. Mine looked like a banana with wings. Um, but uh, there was a bit of that. And then, of course, there was, you know, Shetland Coast Guard would sometimes appear with a, uh, I think it was a Sikorsky S61 they used to use that um, did the sort of search and rescue job. So there was a bit of that. And then, of course, there was the North Sea Oil crew changer. So there was a fair bit of aviation activity, but the Bolco 105 turning up. And, you know, I remember the first time they they took me up for a little flight around the island in it. And it's a tiny island, so it literally took about a minute and a half to go right <laughs> around the edge. <laughs> but it was one of the best minute and a half of my life, certainly. Wow. Well, uh, trying to re- recover his... Uh 
pithy comment earlier. Uh, Captain Al says, all jokes aside, uh, Rory will, will make an excellent instructor. He really has the right balance of knowledge and integrity. My goodness. That's, wow. Well, that's very kind of him. I'll, I'll send him more money next time. <laughs> my, my... <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. He'll only spend it on wine. Um, is... <laughs> just, sorry, the, the radio geek in me has to ask this question, I'm afraid, Rory. I mean, what, how did you go from, obviously, this passion of, of wanting to be a, a, you know, flying helicopters, obviously, uh, where you were living, etc. I mean, how did you go from, from that to what certainly us here in the UK know you as working on Five Live and, and you know, sort of running studios and all sorts well it, it actually was a real stroke of luck because um one of the other things that was integral to our life on the island was the radio we didn't have a tv till i was 14 and even then it was one of those tiny little black and white ones with an actual knob you had to tune in and a little hoop aerial like you'd see in a cartoon it was hopeless no, no remote control then no remote control and you know it was just awful but we so we we relied hugely on the radio because it didn't require much electricity and it was you know it was available the whole time so i loved the radio and i still do and um, we, once I sort of finished being homeschooled at about the age of 14, I started going into the local grammar school in uh, Kirkwall on the Orkney mainland. I'd commute back and forth at the weekends on a fishing boat. I, I started to, you know, just kind of become more and more interested in radio. And, and one children in need night, I walked into the local radio station, BBC Radio Orkney, and sort of said sounds really interesting is there any chance I could kind of hang around and maybe do something to help and amazingly the boss at the time instead of sending this spotty 16 year old away with a flea in his ear he actually invited me in and said yeah come and get involved and I honestly never left I went straight back in the following Monday and said how great it had been you know can I come back and do more work experience and I, I just basically weaseled my way in to the BBC and then around the same time I'd phoned all three of the armed forces i phoned the the navy the raf and the army and said you know i'd like to become a helicopter pilot will you take me and within the space of 15 minutes my career dream was dashed because all of them on the recruitment line said no on the basis of i was too tall because i'm six foot four and i had a medical history of asthma on my record as a right. small child which i'd already grown out of by that point but it was on my history and they felt one interested. And when, when she said, you're too tall, I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, this was the RAF lady. She said, well, you're too tall. Uh, if, if you have to eject from a jet, you'll lose your legs because they'll be underneath the control console. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, typical smart Alex 16 year old. I said, well, I don't want to be a fast jet pilot. I want to fly helicopters. And as far as I know, you can't eject from them. <laughs> 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 and how was that received? <laughs> well, I, I suspect she thought, well, this guy's got an attitude. We definitely don't want him. So, <laughs> so it's probably more that than the height thing. But anyway, that, that sort of dashed it. So I just, at that point, I just ploughed all my effort into the radio and I worked at the BBC every night after school and, you know, kind of went down that road. Eventually got a job at Five Live and, you know, I moved to London and then up to Salford and, and did that for several years. And it was you know, it was kind of that the aviation thing just never went away. It's, it, uh, you know, you'll all know the same thing and, and everyone watching this will, I'm sure, feel the same that once the aviation bugs bitten you and you've got it in your mind that you want to fly, it just won't stop. 
Wow. I was just going to ask you as well, because, you know, that that must have been a, a massive moment for you. And I remember you uh, showing us a video of you leaving uh, BBC uh, Media City at Salford for the last time. I mean, how long did it take you to make that decision to leave the BBC and to become a full time uh, helicopter pilot? Well, it was a big decision and it was a huge decision for my long-suffering wife, Lizzie, as well, who's been a tremendous support to me throughout all of this and I couldn't have done what I've done without her. But I'd, I'd been lucky because once we'd moved to Manchester and we'd got settled and I'd got this job at the Beeb and I'd started earning a little bit of money and, I, you know, we'd kind of, kind of got fairly well organised. And, of course, Barton Airfield was a 10-minute drive from where I lived. And I saw the small aircraft there and I just thought, well, maybe there's a way for me to at least get a, a license to just fly for fun. And I'll, I was already by that point, I'd, I'd kind of put to bed the idea of ever being a commercial pilot. I thought, well, it's, it's just, fate's just not going to work. It's not going to be a thing for me. I'll just try and do it for fun. And I went and spoke to one of the schools there, a couple of the schools, in fact, and eventually settled on main air flying school and doing a, a microlight um, NPPL license. And I absolutely loved it from day one, from the first trial flight in a Eurostar. I thought this is just as good as I thought it would be. It's not a helicopter, but it's brilliant in its own way. And I'm going to be able to go exploring and, and fly and call myself a pilot. So I piled into that. I flew twice a week. I was on shifts at the BBC. So it was easy for me to fly during weekdays and all the rest of it, which was great. And eventually, after about a year of training, I got that license. And I, I, that's when I started the Rory On Air channel. I thought, well, I'll film my flights so I can review them afterwards for my own sort of performance development. Because, um, you know, I notice a lot of things when I'm editing a video that I maybe didn't notice in the air or little nuances with stuff that happens on the radio or whatever. So it's been a useful tool. But... Again, you know, the, the aviation thing, you always want to just do more. It's like, oh, okay, well, I can fly that, so maybe I could try another type of aeroplane. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get my LAPL license because there's a loophole that means that if I get it now, I might one day get a PPL. I'll just – Lizzie's like, you're not going to spend more money on it, are you? You've already got a license. Why do you need another? I'm like, well, you know, if blue folder's a blue folder, I wouldn't mind another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got three now. Um, so I, I sort of ploughed on with that and then – we, we'd been up in Orkney, Lizzie and I, for a, a summer holiday, and we were literally driving back in the car. Lizzie was driving. I was scrolling through Facebook in the passenger seat, and I saw this advert from Heli Centre for um, these Bristow cadets um, to you know, join and get trained as a commercial helicopter pilot and sent off onto the North Sea. And I looked at the requirements for what was needed. And it was things like UK driving license, you know, five GCSEs, a legal right to work in the UK. And I was like, tick, tick. Yeah, I've got that. And I, I, I showed it to Lizzie when we arrived back home. And she said, well, you might as well apply. You know, she, she subsequently said to me she didn't think I'd actually get through. So she thought it was, might as well just encourage me to apply anyway. So I put in an application and long story short, which you can watch the kind of full story on Rory on air. Um, but uh, long story short, they, they offered me a plate. So I didn't win one of the, the Bristow sponsorships. So I ended up having to pay for the course myself, but there was only eight of us on the course. Four of them were the Bristow cadets. And then there's four of us who've self-funded it ourselves. So out of, I think they had about 850 applications in the first place. So to have got down to, you know, one of the last spaces, even with having to pay for it myself, felt like an achievement. And I, 
I talked to Lizzie and my parents about it a lot. And I just thought, look, I'm 31. If I don't do this now, this really is absolutely it. It's game over for commercial flying for me. I'm never going to get another chance. And sometimes you just have to take a risk in life. And I've, I, I, you know, I loved the BBC. I loved my job there. I had a great relationship with my colleagues. It was good fun. It was exciting. I could see myself doing that happily as a career. But again, that nagging feeling of I just wanted to be in the sky. And if someone's going to pay me to be in the sky and it's a helicopter, I just had to do it. Wow. On the, on the air of um, role models, actually, uh, Rory, because I think most of us watch various YouTube channels of pilots who have their own channels like yourself. And you kind of look at these, a lot of the youngsters especially, look at these pilots and follow these pilots and think, oh, I really want to be, I want, I want to do what he's, you know, I want to fly what he's flying. You know, at the start of this kind of thing with you, when it all started, the kind of whole flying, wanting to fly, learn to fly, to where you are now, was there any particular kind of role models you had that you knew of or you knew personally or you saw online or on sort of social media? Yeah, well, I mean, social media wasn't really a thing back then. But um, when I started Rory on air, the, a couple of the big inspirations for me was um, John the Flying Reporter and Plain Old Ben, both of whom who already had successful YouTube channels. And I sort of looked at theirs and I thought, well, perhaps I could try and do something a bit like that. But my niche would be microlites when they were flying um, Group A stuff. So that was that was kind of one of my start points for that. And both of them have since become good friends, which is really nice. And I've met actually a lot of really good friends through the YouTube community. So it's, you know, that's been really great, but winding it back a bit further than that, actually, aside from the Northern Lighthouse board and, and it was actually bond helicopters who they hired and it was their pilots that were always willing to answer my questions and let me sit in the cockpit Although I remember once when I was six, one of them offered to let me sit in the cockpit, obviously, when it was all shut down. And I refused because I thought it was so magical that there was a strong chance it might actually just take off with me in it and I wouldn't know what to do. So I refused <laughs> and I just stood next to it and looked in. And I've always regretted that since. <laughs> but no, they, they, they were great. But the, the Orkney Flying Club, there was a flying club in Orkney that had a, a Cessna 172, a bit of a battered old thing, but it was, you know, it was it flew. And some of the guys there had built their own aeroplanes as well. And it was, you know, there were guys in their sort of 40s, 50s and 60s who'd go there for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. And I would pedal out to the airport on my push bike in all weathers and sit in this drafty old porter cabin with them. And I was the youngest person there by about 30 years. And they were so friendly and encouraging. And every time they went flying, if they had a spare seat, they would take me with them um they were just fantastic and they always encouraged me and i think that's hugely important to get people into this industry because it is difficult the exams are hard you know there's a lot of hoops to jump through there are a lot of barriers finance you know itself being one of them and my my parents are you know crofting sheep farmers they're not wealthy bankers or anything like that um, so, you know, financially, that, that's why I never thought it was going to happen. If the military weren't going to pay for it, there was no way I was ever going to be able to afford it. But, you know, 10 years of hard work and all the rest of it. So it, it, it is difficult, but role models are really important. And I, you know, I wouldn't like to call myself a role model to anybody. But if anyone watches my channel and sees what I'm doing and what I've done and wants to follow what else might happen next in my career and you know, if in some tiny way helps to give them just that little bit of a nudge to think, yeah, I'm going to give this a go myself. And, 
you know, that's a win. If, if one person becomes a pilot of any shape or form because of something I've said or done, that's, that's worth it. Actually, uh, uh, all jokes aside, with Captain Al here, we were just saying, uh, he was just saying both Rory and The Flying Reporter have been very honest uh, in the mistakes that they've made. So this is a very important aspect of learning and is very much uh, to be encouraged. And I think really that, I mean, Al does sort of like type rating um, training and stuff uh, for sort of A320s and things like that. So, you know, this, this is a guy who knows what you're talking about. But uh, I, I think that's so true, isn't it? I think that's one of the nice things about the your, your channel is it is very much warts and all if you see what i mean so it hasn't always gone smoothly for you and you've been gracious enough if you like to share that with the people that are following you well that's very kind of you and i think i think the flying reporter does a tremendous job of that to be honest it's it's actually quite difficult because on the one hand i love sharing the mistakes because they're often the things that are entertaining and people will learn from that i learn from it and i don't want to take away the opportunity for other people to benefit from seeing me make a mistake and learn from it by cutting it out but on the other hand i have to bear in mind that anyone who might think about employing me isn't going to want to employ somebody <laughs> who looks like an idiot who can't operate an aircraft safely so there has to be a line somewhere i mean fortunately i hand on heart don't think i've done anything really stupid yet um, but, you know, I have cut things out because, you know, in the context of a video or the way it's edited, it may just not look good and, you know, taken out of context and particularly on the internet, people who, you know, armchair pilots can be quite harsh. And again, I'm very lucky that, you know, the vast bulk of the comments I get on my channel are all positive and friendly and helpful. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I, you know, I sort of wonder as the channel grows and the net gets cast wider, whether or not that'll change. So that'll be interesting to see. But the, the, the editing process and whether to include mistakes and errors and all that sort of stuff is a constant battle for me and is something that I discuss on a regular basis. I mean, every video that I've produced while I've been flying with Heli Center, they've watched and checked for me before I've put it online because... Right. Obviously, it's their aircraft. It's it's their train set, as I say, and I, you know, they have a, a right to have their business and their flight school represented fairly. But also, I don't want my channel and my videos to scupper my employment prospects in the future with with Heli Center and and wider afield too. So, it is a it is a difficult um, sort of call to make. And one of the things that actually that's come up in the last few weeks is about me sort of appearing to present while i'm flying because i'm talking kind of to an audience whilst i'm i'm flying as well and i think you know i can see why people might be concerned about that and it's it is a, a, a difficult one but because i am a broadcaster at heart you know that's what my old job was a lot of people are scared of microphones and cameras and they get distracted by them and they think they need to look at them carefully and it, you know it's 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 a bit of a thing whereas it's not a thing for me now because a i've been flying with cameras in the cockpit for 150 hours probably nearly 200 hours now and i'm so used to having them around you know a radio show when you're the presenter and you're the person driving the mixing desk you, it's it's all one thing you can't talk without driving the mixing desk and you can't do the mixing desk without talking so you have to do it all at once and you know obviously you you're 
thinking about the flying 100% and probably not saying anything when you're on final approach and all that sort of stuff. But when you're in the cruise and you've done all the checks and everything's trimmed and you're keeping a good lookout, I, I feel like I have the capacity to say something that might end up on a video that's a bit more and over and above what somebody else who isn't from a broadcasting background would say. But again, taken out of context, people might think, oh, this guy's not concentrating on the flying. He's just presenting a TV program in a cockpit. That's dangerous. This guy's an idiot. So it, but, it's, but, but, it's I mean, very difficult. And you, Yeah, sort of like on the flip side to that, though, as you say, because that used to be your job, essentially, um, something like with the rest of us were doing would take us more time if you like to to be able to do that you're you're literally almost able to do that because of your background if you like almost in your sleep so if you like you're so used to doing it there is more capacity for for you to be it's much more natural for you to be chatting away and talking to people because that's what you were doing like day in day out obviously at, at five live yeah absolutely i mean you know that is that is totally totally how i see it and i you know look aviation in any form is dangerous and is something to be taken incredibly seriously and you know there's no room for mistakes and joking around to a large degree um particularly in helicopters i mean you know they are they are an unusual beast and they have to be treated <laughs> with great respect because if something goes wrong you've not got very long to deal with it effectively before you're in a real pickle and i'm very well aware of that um, and you know that does sort of play on my mind a lot. But on the other hand, yes, uh, for me personally, I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't feel is totally safe. And I talk to myself when I'm in the cockpit anyway. If if one of you came and flew with me, you would hear me saying the checks out loud, talking myself through what I'm going to do next, what I'm thinking about next, what's happening, you know, next in the flight, because that's how I process it that's how i kind of learn that's how i just that's how i operate i'm a talky sort of person um and so if that comes out on a video looking like i'm presenting it's not really it's just me doing what i normally do yeah i just look uh, into the chat room at the moment so alex robinson says uh, he's personally learned things from rory's channel even little things like how easy it is to fly the lane at east midlands which he used today Excellent. Well, that's great. I, it, that's another interesting point is that I've, I've spoken to quite a few pilots who seem quite, you know, new pilots who seem nervous about controlled airspace and doing things like the Shepshed Long Eaton Lane at East Midlands or even the low level corridor up near Manchester, things like that. And my experience of controllers has, I, I was nervous about it too. I was, I mean, there's a video on my channel where I took my wife up to Fife from Barton, which was a long day out in the in the Icarus, and I remember the nerves when I knew I was going to have to key the mic to speak to Edinburgh Radar and ask them for a transit <laughs> through the zone. Oh, well, I felt like a naughty schoolboy, but they couldn't have been more helpful. It couldn't really be any easier. They asked me to hold. They asked me if I could see the landing A320. I said A firm, and off I went. Actually, not... you, you mentioned the, as I say, doing the the flight through Fife and stuff. I've got in front of me here one of the videos that I'm going to uh, play here now. Now this, now this was flying through London. Am I correct? This particular video? Yeah, yeah. This is the heli lanes. This was great. I mean, how on? I mean, it's like, <laughs> how on earth? What that must? I mean, the, is there a lot of commentary in your ears going on? Obviously, when you're flying through somewhere like London. I mean, because it's, you know, I mean, that's very controlled airspace. 
Yes, it is. And we, we briefed a lot about this before we went. And I studied the chart and I studied because there's a lot of different altitudes that you have to be at because you fly underneath the approach for, for the runways at Heathrow. Um, this bit here where we're going past the, the western end is actually very rare to be able to do that in a helicopter without a lot of holding. Um, I was told by James, he he was impressed that we got to do that. So as awful as COVID has been and is, particularly for the airline industry, if there's one small bonus was that I got to do that. And there was a lot going on in my ears. There was a lot of radio stuff, but I can't, I don't think there was as much, you know, anything like as there would have been normally. And the controllers were as, you know, incredibly accommodating, which was fantastic. But that was a real trip. And I, every time I've done something like that, the trip through Edinburgh up to Fife, you know, it was a long way. It was, you know, with Lizzie. So it wasn't anyone who knew anything about aviation who could help me. I had to do it all myself. I had to put my big boy pants on and get on with it. And the heli lanes, obviously, I had James there to help me. But the idea was for me to try and do it without help so that I knew I could do it on my own. And they're just fantastic experiences. And that's one of the things that HeliCenter have done so well is, is really pushed us on this, the integrated course. We've done so many of these longer trips. We went to the Isle of Wight. Some of the guys went over to Carnarvon. Um, you know, lots of controlled airspace transits. And every time you do it and it works and they let you through and you feel like you've, you've kind of shown yourself in a reasonably good light, it boosts your confidence and makes you feel like, yeah, I can do this. This is no big deal. Yeah, it was interesting. I was going to ask you about the integrated course, actually, Rory. What the uh, what are the pros and cons of of that course? Would you say? Well, for me, the biggest pro of of doing it integrated was that it was it was going to be really intense, and it was incredibly intense. I'm sitting here looking at my three massive lever arch files of all the notes from the ATPLs, and I hope I never have to look at them again. Um, but it was it was all condensed. That I knew it was going to be about a year. I mean, in the end, it was. 12 to 14 months but only because of covid delays it would have been done in less than a year had it not been for that and it was effectively a full-time job for for that length of time and that's how i kind of treated it studying all day more revision in the evening same again tomorrow more study at the weekend and and flying in between um and i i knew that at my age and given that i'd been out of higher education for that length of time i needed to do it in that sort of way if i tried to do the exams and do a PPL whilst doing a job, I think life would have moved on and I just would have, it would have taken an absolute inordinate length of time. And I probably would have got bogged down in the, the study and, and possibly just not managed to get through it. So there are advantages of both, you know, integrated and modular and lots of people have got really strong opinions one way or the other. I obviously didn't do it modular, so I don't know how that goes, but integrated work really well for me and it's worked well for the other guys on my course and i think you know there's a lot to be said for it it's the first chance to do an integrated commercial helicopter course in the uk the course that i was on and now hc2 is running at the moment and there's there's going to be more you know next year as well so it's an option for people now which is i think is great yeah how did you find the transition from fixed wing to rotary was that a, a massive leap for you yeah it was actually it's funny because when we when we first started flying it was like january last year um and it was you know cold and windy i mean nearly every day we flew was like sort of almost on the limits for the wind in the helicopter which is you know about 30 knots we we don't go even when the structure it's above 30 
and it was it was a real challenge and I you know probably a bit youthful exuberance maybe a certain degree of arrogance thought well I can fly an airplane I've got 140 hours on planes you know this can't be that hard I must be able to pick it up I'll probably get it before the other guys and boy was I was I in for a shock it was it was a it is just a completely different ball game it's all different motor skills um it handles completely differently you have to think about lots of different things um you know i, I remember in the airplane that the flight's not over till you've pulled it to a halt and put the parking brakes on and shut the engine down obviously but the taxi process is generally a little bit more relaxing than the landing whereas in the helicopter the taxiing and the hovering bits where you've really got to be on your a game above anything else um so it was very different and it, i you know i struggled with that a bit and, and i actually i had a chat with plain old ben sitting why am i finding this so difficult and he said well just go easy on yourself you know keep going and you'll you'll get there eventually and he was right and the instructors you know they said the same thing we just we sort of plugged away at it but it was very different i think in the end the biggest help the airplane time has done for me is is with the radio and the confidence with controlled airspace and navigating and just time in the air just time in the cockpit being in charge of an aircraft and all that sort of stuff um that's that's really what the biggest help of the plane time was for me actually one of the things i noticed um rory on on your videos is you you are a user of sky demon am i yeah. correct yeah 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 it's it's a brilliant app i use myself on the sim when i'm here at home because it, it ties in with the um x-plane but is do you find that one of the kind of better platforms to use for flight planning and training yeah i absolutely i mean i love sky demon i've used it ever since i started flying in the micro light it's a brilliant tool it's dead easy to use and um i highly recommend it heli center use runway hd um on their school ipads and i think the primary reason is because you can install um the actual caa charts and also more importantly for helicopters the ordnance survey one in 50,000 maps which go into real detail which is important if you're mm. trying to land in a confined area or in a pub garden or something you really want to be able to see all the, the sort of really extreme detail which is not as important for anybody who's flying around a plane from airport to airport or whatever so they're both great bits of software but yeah i i still use sky demon now for a lot of my planning and i always have it with me on my phone or on an ipad i, I wouldn't go flying without it the, the chart's great you've got to be able to know how to use a chart and how to navigate in the sort of old school way but the amount of capacity it frees up to keep looking out the window and to concentrate on making the right calls and knowing exactly where you are awareness of airspace and all the rest of it it's it's a vital tool and i just wouldn't go flying without it so from your training then, from all aspects of the training you've done, um, are there any kind of memorable moments that really stand out, apart from obviously solo, because um, <laughs> that's probably the most memorable, but are there any other kind of moments that kind of stand out you we will never forget? Um, the, the hard thing is picking, is nailing it down. I don't think there's been a flight I've gone on where I've not at one point or another thought, this is fantastic. Um, I, I just I get such a huge buzz from it. It's 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 the little things. Um, that moment, you know, calling my parents and telling them that I got my license was was pretty epic. Um, the heli lanes was fantastic. I mean, that 
you know, flying along the Thames when I lived in London for 18 months and I used to walk along the side of the Thames and I'd see helicopters flying around and I you know, never really thought it would ever be me one day. So that was amazing. The trip to the Isle of Wight we did. Um, that was, you know, I said at the furthest south I've ever been on an airplane. Someone said, didn't you go to Australia on your honeymoon? I, but I wasn't flying the plane. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this, it's, it's just been great. It's been a fantastic experience. Every step of the way, all the little tiny milestones you make when you make your first landing and you're wobbling all over the place and you get it down on the skids, you think, yes, done it. And, you know, obviously learning to hover is a big one because that initially just seems impossible. And, you know, it may take hours. It did for me. And eventually something clicks and you think, if I do less, this sort of works better. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's it's been fantastic. And now I'm now I'm starting. Well, I'm partway through the type conversion course onto the R44, which I'm really enjoying because that's a new challenge. Now I've got hydraulics and you know, it goes a bit faster. So I've had to change from an 80 knot brain to a hundred knot brain and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. So it's, it's, you know, that's one of the best things about aviation is every single flight you go on, there's something new, even flying the same route through East Midlands that you've done before. And you, you know, they're going to tell you not above 2000 feet remain East of the M1. You just know they're going to say it, but every time the weather's slightly different, the conditions back at the airfield slightly different. There's somebody else out in the circuit. You have to work around. It's always new. And that is exciting. So you're obviously flown the Cabri and you're learning at the moment on the R44, aren't you? Like you said, is there, is there another helicopter kind of in the, well, in the kind of grand scheme of things that you'd like to get type rated on as well, or be able to fly? Well, how long have you got? Um, the <laughs> Heli Center have just got themselves a very nice matte black uh, 109S Grand, which I'm hopefully going to have a go in at some point fairly soon. Um, so that'll be that'll be fantastic. Um, flying the Bolco 105 is a bit of a bucket list item for me. I don't think there are very many of them left in the country, but because that was the aircraft that sort of started all of this and I've, I've had this photograph which you showed earlier on my desk all the way through all the exam study and in the darkest days of winter when it was raining and I was miserable I used to look at that and think come on Rory get on with it this is what this is all about so I'd love to have a go at one of those but I mean the EC135 the 145 bit of heli med action the police um, search and rescue um, all of that would be uh, would be absolutely fantastic also, um, just going on about t- kind of the, the the YouTube channel, Rory on Air. Obviously, I mean, I subscribe. I know Nev subscribes as well to that. Um, where, how did the uh, Rory on Air come about? You know, where did the uh, the, the kind of idea to to have your own YouTube page with all your own videos and stuff on? Um, well. Uh... <laughs> The, the what the idea to start the channel or the idea to start the website uh the idea to start the channel the uh, youtube channel well it, that as i say it was when i started um when i when i got to the end of the microlight training i think that the first two videos on my channel which were appallingly bad um <laughs> i'm embarrassed to watch them again now um were my two cross-country qualifying flights to ints and blackpool um and i filmed those with one camera and the cockpit audio and then you know i kind of got a taste for it after that and i've every time i make a video since i always try and introduce a new technique because i did a tv and radio production degree at university in sunderland and it was meant to be tv and radio but because i was 
a teenager and was a bit of a I want to be the you know big I am at uni sort of thing and I knew a bit about radio and I was already involved in the BBC I just focused all my efforts on the radio station and I was kind of the guy from radio and I just didn't bother with TV because it seemed like a massive faff and editing is a pain in the backside and it takes <laughs> ages and why would you want to have to light something and build a set and faff about with your background going off and all the rest of it <laughs> when you can just grab a microphone and get on with it you know radio is obviously the way to go do you know what I mean all this trouble Amen to that. To. yeah <laughs> but then <laughs> but then eventually you know you you sort of get bitten by the bug and actually i i love video editing now it's a really creative thing to do and i kind of when i'm when i made that video outside the bbc saying i'm leaving it was kind of i'm leaving the bbc and i'm sort of leaving youtube because i thought well i'm not going to have any time to edit anything when i'm doing this course and i also had no idea whether or not heli center would be amenable to allowing me to film anything or or make any content that involved their aircraft so i thought well this may be it at the very least until years down the line i've got disposable income again and can start flying the microlights which i fully intend to do by the way um and you know so i i just sort of thought well that's that's the end of it but every time i do a video i try to introduce something new whether it's some sort of effect or a new bit of music or new edit technique or whatever and you know, this, it, it just takes an inordinate amount of time. I mean, it's days and days and days to get a video down to the 19 or so minutes that I'm happy with, that I'm happy to <laughs> let sit on the internet forevermore. Yeah, <laughs> well, well I mean, we, we very much feel your pain there, to be fair, Rory. We did a Christmas show um, <laughs> that was, I think, was about one hour and 45 minutes long when it actually went out. Uh, I think I think John, our producer, totaled up, I think we'd spent about 90 hours uh, work to actually make that one hour, 45 minute video. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. You know, yeah, we're going to go to some listeners' questions now, actually. And one that really, uh, the, the geek in me is really sort of uh, uh, perks up on this one. This one's from Tony S. And, and he's saying that, uh, Rory, when you were at the BBC, were you ever used as an impromptu aviation expert? Uh, seems like there isn't much of that going on these days. Um, I, I've have got two stories about that, actually. One of them was <laughs> when I was very new. I was in my first week or two at the BBC World Service in London. And the World Service is a fantastic thing, but it's very much, good day, this is the BBC Home Service. We're terribly <laughs> posh and we do everything properly. Um, I don't know what you mean. Uh, yeah, and and every, everyone's got their job. And if it's not your job, you ruddy well shut up and let us do our job. <laughs> And the technical people are the oily rag engineering technical people and the presenters and the reporters are gods and everybody lets them do their thing. So I'm sat there in this sort of office area where the technical people live. There's sort of like a man cave full of old 1960s equipment. Um, and this guy comes in. I can't remember his name, but he'd, he'd been a reporter at World Service for probably 20 or 30 years. And he came in and asked me to edit a voice piece, which is like a 40-second you know recording about a news story and it was to do with the air france crash oh wow and he'd referred to he said something in his piece like there was a blockage in the pilot tube <laughs> and i said to him right. i said i'm terribly sorry but you're going to have to go and re-record this and he said why nothing wrong with it yeah. and i said to him well i'm afraid there is you've referred to the pilot tube and it's a pito tube so that's just a mistake you're gonna have to go and do it again <laughs> So he huffed off out of the room. 
<laughs> my, my mates who sat in there with me, they said, God, you're ballsy, Rory. Why are you <laughs> telling that? You know? I said, well, it's just wrong. You know, he'll get laughed out of court if that goes out on air. It's just a mistake. So off he went. And he came back about 20 minutes later with a new recording. And he said to me, he said, um, I think I owe you an apology, dear boy. Um, oh, wow. It turns out you're correct. And uh, I've re-recorded the voice piece, if you wouldn't mind editing that. And while I was editing it, he said to me, do you mind me asking how you knew that? <laughs> oh, wow. So I was like, well, I'm a bit of an aviation geek. And it's kind of an obvious one when, when you're in that circle. So that was one time. And then much more recently, when I was working at Five Live, I think there was a story about an aircraft that had, had a bit of a crash landing at a grass runway, which was parallel to a road. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in England. It was a light aircraft, like a PA-28 or something, had you know, hit some wires, I think, had gone into a, a grass runway. And the Jeremy Vine program, who I'd been working on the production team for a few weeks, a few months prior, called me up and said, will you come on and talk to Jeremy? And I'm a massive Jeremy fan. So I went on and he's like, so Rory, good to have you on the program. Tell me, first of all, is aviation as dangerous as everybody thinks? And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not, Jeremy. Good actually. impression, it's, by the way. Good impression. <laughs> thanks very much. I pride myself on making a yeah, good yeah, impression. Quite. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was a good one. Good fun as well. But no, maybe that's something to carve out in the future. Once I actually become an expert, which will probably take 30 years or so. <laughs> We were actually considering at one stage uh, having a segment on the programme called Nev's Media Fails, where we would highlight which, uh, how many media fails there had been this week, whether it's you know, <laughs> identifying the wrong aircraft or, or the wrong uh, airfield or whatever. But we decided it would be so many, uh, we'd actually overrun the programme. We'd have no show left. But just going back to the chat room for a second, uh, Chris, Chris Marsh uh, asks, um, if you had to have an engine failure in one of the aircraft, you were flying would you prefer that to be in a fixed wing aircraft or rotary oh that's a great question chris um the thing is about helicopters they have got the, the gliding characteristics of a brick um yes but <laughs> a house but brick could, to be precise <laughs> <laughs> but you can get them into a tiny spot so if you're if you're not needing to glide very far because there's a tennis court or a football pitch you know in the chin bubble then, you know, if you do it right, you're home in a boat and you'll be able to walk away from it and use the aircraft again. Whereas, you know, one way or another, the aeroplane's going to be knackered. Um, if you've, you know, if you're more than a mile offshore and you aren't wearing a life jacket and don't fancy getting your feet wet, I'd take the aeroplane all day. Um, <laughs> because you might actually make the beach. <laughs> so it's it's a difficult one. It, it's it's part of the training, you know, as you guys all know, that we we fly defensively, and you're constantly sort of looking for somewhere that you might be able to go and and thinking about that. And we, you know, we we're a bit more cautious about flying over things that wouldn't make a, a happy landing surface in a single engine helicopter because the glide is is much less. But in all honesty having had the training i've had i feel confident that i could make a decent fist of it in either of them and i i genuinely think all the stuff about helicopters not being safe is nonsense i mean igor sikorsky said himself if you're in if you're in peril an aeroplane can come and drop flowers on you but a helicopter can land and save your life and we can now add winching into that as well so that, I, 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 I can't disagree with the logic there there's, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> 
Actually, is there any is there any moments, uh, Rory, scary moments at all? Are, are there any of those moments while you were training that you, you know, doing the the the, the course and stuff? You a little bit of a um, Fortunately, not too many. I I had one when I was on a solo flight where there was quite a big rain shower, and I could kind of see sort of through it. I knew it was very thin. I'd I'd looked at it on the sort of radar picture before I set off, and I kind of knew it was coming in my direction. It was thin but very wide, so going round it wasn't really an option. It was either a turn back and have a huge detour or sort of try and get through it. And I remember at the time thinking, well you know, should, should I try and land? Is that more dangerous? We're not really supposed to land when we're students, all the rest of it, and trying to weigh it up. And I was, as I was through the worst of it, it literally only lasted for about 15 seconds. And I could still make out the horizon, but it was, the visibility was cut right back so much that I started to think, well, I'm going to just use my instruments to make sure I'm level rather than trusting that vague horizon I can see. And I thought about that quite a lot afters of whether or not I'd pushed my luck there. But having spoken to instructors about it since, they were like, no, that's fair enough. You know, that's you could still see the horizon and all the rest of it. It wasn't a cloud. So that was a bit of a, you know, that, that sort of made me think. And again, with training in January with strong winds, you know, if, if you're, you can, you've got to be really on it with your feet in the helicopter. And once the tail starts to go, you know, I'd imagine it's a, in some ways like trying to taxi, ground taxi, a, a tailwheel aircraft. You know, there's sort of a ground looping risk. But in the air, if you, and particularly with a fenestron, a lot of the thrust is at the far end of the pedal travel. And, you know, you could be in a turn, the wind catches the fin and whips you around. And I had one instance where that happened when I was fairly early on and the instructor had to kind of literally step in and <laughs> apply quite a lot of right pedal to sort me out. And it was that was a bit of a moment where I thought, oh, blimey, I wonder if I'd be able to fix that myself. Um, but, you know, fortunately, nothing too scary as yet. Watch this space. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll put it on my channel if it happens, assuming I make it out to actually edit the video. Well, uh, now, we've got some, hopefully we've got not. Some, <laughs> so we've got some questions from the chat room to get through. I've got one here, and then, uh, Nev's got a few as well. But we've got a quick one from Jonathan Warner, who is our military expert fan, or military aviation fan. Um, he's asking, despite never getting into the military, was there a type that you specifically wanted to fly? Ah, oh, good question. Um, well, the Lynx was always a, a pretty exciting-looking oh, yeah. aircraft when I was younger. Um, so I think I think probably the Lynx. I, I watched. Um, there's a movie that a lot of you aviation dudes will have possibly seen. It's called Firebirds: Wings of the Apache, and it's a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> it's like a sort of knockoff version of Top Gun, but for the Apache. And it's pretty naff in many respects, but there's some nice flying it, and there's a lovely MD500 as well, which I would have happily have a go in one of those. So I guess though Apache or the Lynx probably. Wow. Uh, next question from uh, Mark Priestley. Uh, Mark says, uh, "How difficult? What was the uh, hardest part of your training?" Um, trying to do everything at once. I think um, you know each element of it is all well and good. Um, you know when you're sort of being taught it and trying to learn things, but getting myself psyched up for the 
the skill test at the end, the CPL skill test, where I knew that I had to act like a captain. I had to be spot on with the navigating. I had to be within plus or minus 100 feet, plus or minus 10 knots. And actually, the, the school had taught us, you know, plus or minus 100 feet isn't good enough. You need to be plus or minus zero, which is good because, you know, train hard, test easy is a good a good thing to have in your mind. But, you know, to begin with, the idea of being able to fly straight and level is daunting. And then throw in trying to read the map and, oh, what, you want me to talk on the radio at the same time? You must be having a laugh. Oh, come on, you're a broadcaster. You do that in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's a completely different language, isn't yeah, it? You know, it is, yeah. It, the principle is talking on the radio, but once you've got to know what you've got to say, I mm. mean, <laughs> what do you mean a basic service? <laughs> Actually, Mark asked another question as well. He's sort of saying, uh, what would be your ideal job in the world of helicopters? What would you most love to do? Uh, I think that's pretty easy. I would love to do um, search and rescue. The idea of, you know, kind of getting back to the, the island community and offshore, the, the coast and the sea, um, you know, the camaraderie that I had with my colleagues in the studio at the BBC was amazing. And I can imagine that the camaraderie that you have in a, you know, four crew search and rescue aircraft where everyone relies on each other so that you can safely pluck somebody off a sinking trawler in the middle of the night in the dark in a force five, that's that would focus the mind um, and the machinery that they use for it is incredible. So search and rescue is something I aspire to do eventually. Um, HEMS, Helimed stuff. I would love to do that. The idea of landing in a different place all the time and the kind of make it up as you go along element to it, um, obviously all within the sort of safe bounds, but you, you know, you've got to, you've got to be reasonably creative. And I, I like to think that I'm a reasonably creative person. So the idea of being able to mold a bit of creativity and a bit of you know flying procedurally into one thing would be fantastic but to be honest if if somebody rang me up and said do you want a job and it it, it ticks the boxes helicopters and they pay me for it i'm there so it's you know i wouldn't say no to anything uh, so uh, Captain Al says in the, uh, the chat room, says that SAR, well, there goes the life insurance. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> I see. Uh, but he also says, now it's possible. When does Rory plan to land on Auscarry? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that that is a major bucket list item. Even just the fly to Orkney um, was something that I was planning on doing in the aeroplane. I was kind of working myself up to that. But um, now I, I, what I'd love to do on part of my hour building, once the COVID restrictions lift and hopefully we get into summer is to get in a, an aircraft, probably the 44, because it's a bit quicker and take Lizzie up to Orkney and hopefully fly out to Alscary and get, get the, the picture that I've stared at of the Balco 105, but with me standing in front of a helicopter that I actually got there in front of Alscary Lighthouse, that would be, that would be cool. <laughs> we look forward to that picture. Rory. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, make sure you send it in to us, actually. Make sure you be get great. that exact shot as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll, I'll do my best. I think the picture of the bill might be a bit of a worry. But right. We'll yeah. that bridge we come to <laughs> it. Minor details. It's all details. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, Rory, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so very much for being so generous with your time today. Um, it's, uh, oh, honestly, I, I've had a lot of fun. I don't know about you guys. But we do have to ask Brilliant. Rory the, the oh, final yeah. oh, of course. Yes, question. we must do that. Yes. This could be interesting, um, seeing as he's into Holocaust. Which we've given you no notice of whatsoever, Rory, I'm afraid. But uh, if, oh, you no. had the, <laughs> if you had the Get chance your and credit cards out. any aircraft at all, so it could be fixed wing, rotary, GA, uh, corporate jet, 
commercial airliner, anything at all, either current uh, or military or past, uh, anything at all, what would it be? Uh, um, I know that everyone probably says this, and it, it probably shows, a, you'll probably think, oh, this is a lack of forethought from Rory, but... <laughs> I have to say the Spitfire because it's so iconic yeah. and it's got such an amazing sound. Every time I hear one, I've heard a few over Leicestershire and our head's hanging out the window. And I'm shouting at Lizzie, it's a Spitfire, it's a Spitfire. She says, how do you know? I said, have you got ears? Like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, and why should I care? That sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're so rare and, yeah. you know, they're just they're such a beautiful aircraft and they represent so much of what's fantastic about this country mm. and i would just love to you know I, I would just love to fly one of those so okay it's not a helicopter but yeah bucket list item get me in a spitfire but you can do just what you've got to do is find eight grand wow yeah. okay right yeah well i know but i could probably take a jet ranger to orkney for the summer holidays <laughs> if i had eight grand spare so <laughs> Yeah, I wonder which one which, I'd rather do. Yeah. Well, absolutely. which one am I going to be able to sell to my wife? That's right. the key question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that. Yeah. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to go to Latouke in an EC120, Lizzie, or do you want me to go up in a Spitfire for half an hour and lord yeah. it up? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I suspect a negative response forthcoming. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's why God invented joint accounts. <laughs> right. Wow. God, you really, you really know, you really had no no fear, yeah. do you, Carlos? Right. She's not watching. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, my wife is she's watching downstairs, and she's sitting in the room that has the internet router, so she could right. literally pull yeah. the plug could on me fall, right now. Fall off air any minute. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, on that bombshell, then we better start <laughs> wrapping up. Thank you for joining us, Rory. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, part nine is up next of our fantastic series we've had with George Lee MBE, uh, and we're talking about gliding world championships in this week's episode um so the tlp was uh, actually not far from where you were gonna fly the next your third world championship um so that must have been quite handy only logistically in terms of getting there, Nick. In every other way, where I was was absolutely, apart from Scotland, as bad as it got because I was getting throughout that tour almost no gliding and suddenly a World Championships is looming. So here we are again, relying on the practice period. And the World Championships were held at a place called Paderborn, airfields called paderborn Haxleburg, right up again, northern Germany, and the owner and, uh, of one of the two main glider factories way down near Stuttgart, top competition pilot himself, he flew in those worlds, actually. He was furious when the news was given that the venue was going to be Paderborn because it was totally in the wrong place as far as soaring weather, soaring conditions were concerned. It should have been in southern Germany. But I guess politics came into it and... It actually, although the weather was, yes, seriously not great, it, it, it really wasn't. It was a very successful event. I think overall the organization was very good. Airfield was a grass airfield, not huge, but they had put in great big f football stadium type seating tiered up. And the public just came in their droves every day to witness the takeoffs and, of course, the finishes at the end of the day. 
uh, and the publicity was undoubtedly wonderful for them and all gliding in that area. One day I had a technical problem and it was sufficient to say to my crew, look, I'm going to come back. I just need to get this sorted. I can't go off on task the way it is. So they got everything ready and I let down and landed. And I, it's a small airfield. I could only land in front of this tiered seating in front of everybody and all the TV cameras and everything else rolled out, hid in a corner and let them get on with it. They sorted it out. I got airborne again. So that, that, that was certainly a noteworthy moment. The two German open class pilots, both very capable. They were pairs flying on this occasion. And uh, I was on my own and as far as British open class uh, was concerned. It was psychologically the hardest world championships I've flown in because you were mentioning advancements in, in gliders, Nick. I knew that the next generation of open class was imminent. So from where I was up near Yever, my Marin and I and a little one, we drove down with our caravan to this factory airfield and we waited and waited while they, the workers just put in so much overtime trying to get the first example of this new open class machine from that factory. And the pressure was too much, in fact. And the owner of the factory said, I need to call a business breakfast, as he called it. So I went along to this breakfast and he broke the bad news. He said, I'm sorry, a mistake has been made. We are not going to have this aircraft ready for you for this World Gliding Championships. Oh, wow. And my heart just froze. I thought, what on earth am I going to do? Because the performance gap between what I had been flying in Finland and France against what is coming was too much. Absolutely far too big a handicap. Crazy. So I said, after a moment's thought, can I use your telephone? And I rang up the owner of the other second big glider factory at that time, lovely man. And he said, ah, I was expecting this call. <laughs> he said, oh, really? <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do. So I got short, long story short, I got the third set of this new open class glider wings. It was mounted on an older fuselage. That didn't matter. I had the wings. I had the performance. And the only other truly competitive open-class glider was an American one. And this was a very, very wealthy American guy, very much a can-do guy. And he had a glider like the one that I flew in before. And he was in contact with the chief designer of the, this first glider factory. And between them, they manufactured inner wing stub panels, if you will, thereby pushing the wingspan out you know, another another two or three meters. And that glider was fully competitive. Amazing, amazing feat. So we were only four truly competitive gliders. Okay, that's that's one thing. But at the, the end of it all, it got very, very tense indeed. Uh, the weather was very bad. I said before, I think that last days always seemed to be challenging in one way or another. Finland was. France was the only one that was straightforward. And this one was very challenging. The weather, again, was appalling. I thought they're going to cancel. But they've got to. Nope, you are world-class pilots. Off you go. So off we went. Somehow managed to get around the first turn point, made it to the second turn point, and landed somewhere just after that. 
this German factory owner, who's a very, very good pilot, I don't take that away from him at all. To this day, I don't know how he managed it, but he managed to stagger halfway up that last leg. And although I was solidly in the lead going into that last day, when I rang into control at the airfield, they said, prepare yourself for some bad news. Klaus has landed halfway up the last leg and he's leapfrogged you on the points. So it was a very sober, quiet drive back to the airfield with my crew. Um, and then we had the last day and the weather again was dreadful, dreadful. We were soaring locally before the start and Klaus was on top of me, like I mean on top of me. And I don't blame him because all he had to do was mirror me he was only five points in the lead, which is nothing. Trust me, it's nothing. Uh, all he had to do was mirror me, follow me, do everything I did. If I landed out, land in the same field, and it was his world title. But he very, he didn't, for which I'm very thankful. After a while, <laughs> I'm looking up and he wasn't there. Where was he gone? So finally, I start, get up the first leg, round the turn point, second turn, down the last leg. And I knew I wasn't getting home. The sky was just dead, absolutely dead. And suddenly I got that feeling again I mentioned in Finland. I don't think I'm alone. And I looked back on the, behind my right wing, and there a little distance back and down and in altitude a bit was no less than Klaus. Could not believe it. Now I had... <laughs> he was haunting you. Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, I hadn't seen him up to that point. I, was still had a little bit of, I still had a little bit of water on, so I was gliding better than he was, and we're gliding out, gliding out. Finally, he peels off, and there's a little ridge down there he sees, and he thinks maybe there's enough wind to get a little bit of lift off that ridge. There wasn't, and he landed out. And I pushed on towards a chimney I saw in the distance, got a little bit from that, and I flew out and landed in my own field. And the distance that I had ahead of where he had landed was sufficient, again, to leapfrog back and uh, secure, secure my victory. And Klaus, very gracefully, uh, graciously rather, after the whole event was over, life settling back to normal, he wrote me a lovely personal letter and said he was really, you know, quite satisfied with his second class position, or sorry, second class position, his second position in the overall rankings. Um, he knew that I'd been leading for most of the championships and he knew how the weather was and everything else. That was very nice of him. So that was the first time anyone had ever won three consecutive World Open Gliding Championships. Uh, it must have been a remarkable feeling to know you've done something that no one else has ever done before. When did it really sink in, uh, your achievement? When the points were confirmed and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I had it. <laughs> Everything that flowed on after that was just icing on the cake. You know, it's the actual achievements, not, not the honours and stuff afterwards, uh, frankly. But yeah, I mean, it is, of course, when, when one makes history because it can't, you know, first one to do something is the first one to do something. That can't be, that can never be taken away. So that, yeah, of course, that's special. Absolutely. Now, how much of these competition were about mental preparation and how did you set yourself up for that? You've hit, to me, 
almost the most important factor that's involved, Nick. When you get to that level, there's a huge difference between regional competitions, shall we say, and national competitions. But then when you go from nationals to worlds, it's another jump again. It truly, truly is. And unless you have your mind in the right place, it's going to be extremely hard. But the first mental thing that I always thought I've got to have in my head that I can win. Not that I will win necessarily, although of course I'm very hungry to do just that, but that I can win. I have the potential, I have the ability to win. So I think getting that mindset was first and foremost, that's the foundation. But then when things don't go according to plan and you get an unexpected land at, like that one in Finland, uh, or, or landing back at Paderborn, when those sorts of things start happening, that's when the, that's when the mental, especially Paderborn, is really big. Because Klaus and Bruno, my open-class German opposition, they're off out there going along on task, getting the kilometers behind them. And here I am on the ground getting a technical problem sorted out. And I'm in the lead. <laughs> so those sort of things, very, very hard. And when you come to the last day, like that one again in, in, in um, Paderborn, it, it, it can reach a new level. So the mental side is incredibly important. Yeah, I, I still find it remarkable that I'm actually speaking to a world champion. It's, it is fantastic. Um, but uh, at one point, uh, you were in an aircraft with six world titles in one cockpit um, when you were flying with Helmut Reichmann. No, I, I knew, knew Helmut fairly well. We're up in northern Germany. I was invited to come down and be a part of the German uh, soaring camp preparation. They are very, very top pilots where they do ground school and fly cross country against each other, all that sort of thing. So I came down with the caravan in Marin again in the middle one and the weather was freezing, it was spring. They do this around uh, Easter time, really cold, but the soaring was actually quite good. And yes, Helmut is a three times world champion, but not consecutive. He, 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 he had a gap before he got that third one, but nonetheless, it was lovely to fly with him. When you flying with somebody of that skill and caliber, and, and you know, we observe each other's flying, actually. And uh, yeah, great fun. Absolutely. Now, we're about 1982 now, and uh, that year finished with some pretty big events. I know you don't like making perhaps a big thing about these awards that were being cast in your direction, but Prince Andrew gave you the Lillian Thumb Medal at the Royal Air Club. Now, that's Gliding's highest award and uh, given to you not only for your amazing hat-trick of world championships, but perhaps more for your services to gliding. That must have been a lovely moment. That, for me, was a very special one to get, Nick. The Lillianthal in gliding just towers above everything else. And uh, to have my contributions over the years recognised in terms of helping juniors get set up towards what eventually became the junior nationals in the UK. I had a part during the early days and a number of other things to get that recognized as well as the uh, world championships achievements was very meaningful to me. So that one is, I because gliding means so much to me, that one is pretty much up the top of the tree, I suppose, although the others were superb as well. Absolutely. Uh, now, you've also made that very difficult decision to leave the security of the Air Force. Um, that must have been a, a difficult choice as well. 
If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. So that was part nine of uh, the series there with George Lee. And uh, I think it's safe to say that we have got uh, lots of love for, the, for that segment uh, on the show. Lots of people wait for yeah, that. Yeah, it's been week. really good. Oh, how, uh, how, how, many, how... how many more have we got left, Matt? Um, I think it's about three. Three more left? I think it's okay. about okay. three. Uh, but anyway, enough of that. How great was Rory? Oh, Rory. Absolutely. Oh, legend. my goodness. What, 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 what fun that was. Uh, yes, it was uh, really interesting. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry I had to get the non-aviation related radio geek stuff in there. I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't resist. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he did work for the BBC. Well, quite. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yes, it's a, it's a dream I've had for many years. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I suppose we better do some actual aviation stuff. Yep. So it's time for the commercial news segment, everyone. So uh, if all the team's ready. Indeed. Ready? Let's go. So this week's first commercial news story, I'm sure it's one that has been heard many times over the last week because it's been big news on the aviation networks. And... uh, this one comes to us from Reuters, Av Herald, and SimpleFlying.com. And uh, cloudy with a chance of engine parts. Nice little. As you do. There. As you do. So, showers of jet engine parts over residential areas on both sides of the Atlantic have caught reg- uh, regulators' attentions and prompted the suspension of some older Boeings from uh, service. Uh, Saturday's incident involved a United Airlines 777 in Denver and uh, a long-tail aviation 747 freighter as well in the Netherlands that put uh, engine maker Pratt & Whitney into the spotlight, though there's no evidence that they are related incidents. So United uh, Flight UA328 was due to fly to Honolulu. However, the initial climb out of Denver's runway 25, when the right engine, uh, right-hand engine, the uh, Pratt & Whitney uh, PW4077, inlet separated, uh, associated with the failure of the engine. The crew declared a mayday, reported an engine failure. The aircraft stopped the climb at around 13,000 feet, and the crew requested to return to Denver uh, after running checklists. The aircraft returned to Denver for a safe landing on runway 26 around 23 minutes after departure, and the aircraft stopped on the runway for a check by emergency services. Emergency services advised uh, of an active fire within the right-hand engine and extinguished the fire a few minutes later. The aircraft was subsequently towed off the runway to a remote parking stand where the passengers disembarked and were bussed to the terminal, and there were no injuries. That's the most important part. Uh, Beyond the damage to the right-hand engine itself, the aircraft received a puncture of the right-hand wing root fairing below the right-hand wing. Um, The engine inlet uh, fell into the neighbourhood of a Broomfield uh, 
County, I think it's Brookfield County, located around 16 nautical miles west of Denver. Uh, the debris also stuck, uh, struck the roof of an adjacent house as well. Uh, Broomfield Police reported that although the debris uh, impacted the neighbourhood and damaged a number of homes, there were no injuries on the ground and the debris field expands over a nautical mile. Uh, Boeing recommends suspension of 777s with the same variant of uh, PW4000 turbine. Uh, Japan, meanwhile, imposed a mandatory suspension. And uh, separately, on a separate story, this one, a long-tail aviation Boeing 747-400 freighter, our registration Victor Quebec Bravo Whiskey Tango, performing flight uh, LGT 5504 from Maastricht, Netherlands to New York, was in the initial climb out of Maastricht's runway 21 when the number one engine, a Pratt Whitney 4056 outboard left hand, suffered a severe damage and began to distribute engine parts and turbine blades over the village of Mersen in the Netherlands, about one or two nautical miles past the runway's end. An elderly lady on the ground was hit by debris and received minor injuries. Uh, the crew declared a pan-pan, then a mayday, and reported they had lost the number one engine. The aircraft stopped the climb around uh, flight level 100, entered a hold uh, to dump fuel, and diverted to Liege in Belgium for a safe landing on runway 22 left about one hour after departure. Uh, a number of cars on the ground received damage as a result of the falling debris. I think it's one of the pictures that stood out in social media was the picture of the uh, part of an engine blade stuck in the roof of a car. Now, honestly, guys, that, that picture says says it all. I think uh, with that, especially with that second incident. But on that first incident, I will say with the triple seven, um, with that engine cowling, I was quite shocked actually when I saw that picture of how complete. That engine cowling was in that garden. It was in a fairly good, you know, piece, considering it fell that far from the sky. What dragon Nev? Yes. Um, I mean, luckily, these things don't happen very often. Uh, but when they do, they're, they're fairly spectacular. Now, uh, all, as always with these things, the whole idea is to try and have a contained engine failure. So should a fan blade let go like that, uh, it doesn't do lots of external damage. And obviously there have been occasions in the past where um, things have gone badly wrong and it's seriously punctured the fuselage. And in one case, I think it was the Southwest 737, uh, it actually punctured a window. And uh, sadly, somebody died as a result of that. But uh, as dramatic as it seems, and obviously I wasn't flying it, so I don't know. But I think the crew did a fantastic job of this, mm. um, especially bearing in mind that they were heading towards the Rockies and, and uh, Denver being a very high altitude airport as well. Uh, they had to initially, uh, initiate an immediate turn, either left or right. Uh, to make sure that they uh, they'd got some uh, altitude between them and the mountains, but uh, yeah, this is a, a very good job of getting it back down in, in in one piece and without any passenger injuries. That's the main thing. Actually, Nev, with you and Matt both being you know technical and AV gurus, wouldn't you agree that the quality of pictures that are taken of these incidents, or the triple, especially the triple seven incident and the video, was a was of a, a, a good quality? They were. They were. 
Yes, they and were. in landscape. And more they did it in landscape. <laughs> yeah. None of this vertical video business. No, absolutely. Um, Very so, impressive. So uh, I think even Rory would have been impressed with that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that was uh, nicely done. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, thank goodness everybody's okay. Mm. Yes. Uh, but obviously big investigations going on. But uh, luckily, you know, generally speaking, fan blades don't let go like this very often at all. But uh, when they do it, obviously, it, it is quite spectacular. Actually, one thing before we move on, that the fan blades on, on the particular in question, I think if I'm right, Armando, these were hollow uh, fan blades that are used on this particular engine. The actual fan blade itself is, is a hollow construction. Yeah, I believe so. I think that's the safe way. And uh, obviously, their uh, Pratt and Whitney is going to take a good look at all their their engines that are out there right now and start inspecting not just the fan blades but some of the auxiliary systems. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on what Nev said right here. The uh, the Rockies, yeah, when you take off out of Denver, which is a mile high, so it's 5,000-something feet, um, there are some pieces of rock just just west of the airport that are 16,000 feet tall. But even more challenging would have been uh, had this happened over the ocean. This this flight was actually destined for Honolulu, um, so that could have added a, a whole different uh, uh, factor to this mishap had it actually happened, you know, well out over the, the ocean, yeah. Um, but, you know, here's another thing is uh, when I first saw this, not this has been covered in the news quite a bit, but um, similarly this week, there's been more talk about uh, some of the first aircraft being uh, trialed with uh, single pilot operations for some cargo uh, operators. Can you imagine? So so con uncontained engine failures or engine failures in general are something that we practice quite a bit in any simulator, any recurrent training. Uh, the problem with this whole situation would have been that secondary uh, failure. So as you saw in some of those pictures there, that it did suffer that, that extra damage uh, right at the wing root. And in this case, it turned out to be fine. But what if that had punctured a fuel line, a hydraulic line, mm -hmm. or some of the control cables? You know, now you have a plane load of people. Um, it takes absolutely two people up there to get through that emergency, one to fly and one to go through the systems. Um, so I think in my book, this is just another example of of why perhaps in commercial aviation we shouldn't lean so far forward on single pilot operations because this uh mishap and that and that extra secondary damage that that aircraft cup, uh, suffered could have been could have turned this whole incident very different mm. agreed agreed matt next story Indeed, yes. Uh, so the next story uh, is story two. Now, there was a, a small mention of the possible, uh, shall we say, uh, ending in sight. Uh, it's probably the best way to describe uh, this. And the story is uh, to do with that. EasyJet bookings surge after the UK confirms new travel rules. So EasyJet, along with other European airlines and travel firms, experienced a surge in demand after fresh plans for easing of restrictions were outlined by the UK government on Monday. Boris Johnson said that the government task force would produce a report by the 12th of April recommending how international travel can resume for people in the UK. Foreign trips could be permitted from May the 17th in step three of a four-step plan 
outlined by the Prime Minister. Uh, in uh, hours after the announcement, EasyJet said that bookings for flights from the UK for the summer season surged by more than 335% compared to the same period last week. Similarly, bookings for EasyJet holidays also increased by 630%. EasyJet has offered more new routes and holiday destinations for summer. In a statement, EasyJet Chief Executive uh, Johan Lundgren said uh, that we have consistently seen that there's been a pent-up demand for travel and this surge in booking shows the, the, the signal from the government that it plans to reopen travel and has been what the UK consumers have been waiting for. He said, while the summer may be a little while off, we will be working around the clock to ensure that we are ready to ramp up our flights to reconnect friends and family or take them on a long-awaited holiday to remember. Beach resorts including Dalaman in Turkey, Malaga, Alicante and Palma in Spain, Faro in uh, Portugal, or Faro, sorry, and the Greek island of Crete are the most popular destinations for this summer amongst EasyJet's list. So um, I can't say any of us are at all surprised that there may have been a bit of a surge in bookings. I dare say this time next week there'll be some figures that are released by a, a certain other low-cost carrier that will, I'm sure, show a similar picture. Now, uh, are we all jumping the gun a bit here, Nev? Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> Flying has to take place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you saw the figures in the news today, but um, uh, the IAG group, uh, who owns uh, British Airways, amongst others, uh, lost £6 billion. And uh, this sort of business cannot continue, otherwise we will not have an aviation industry. So I'm all for caution and all the rest of it, but this has to get back to some kind of... Uh, sensible level um, mm. it might not be th- this year uh, but we've got to start uh, flying again now the vaccine rollout is going so well in certain countries but not all obviously indeed this is true is that yes. Nev, you've uh, never you've got a story about an aircraft that needs a little extra rear padding yes now i found this a fascinating story i hope everybody else does as well <laughs> But it says that the uh, Airbus A321 XLR rear fuel tank demands special fire protection conditions. And this aircraft will be subject to special conditions proposed for the aircraft's integrated rear centre tank intended to ensure adequate protection from fire, EASA said. Uh, The large 12,900-litre tank located in the aft hold of the twin jet will contain the fuel necessary for the aircraft to achieve its extended range. Uh, Airbus has submitted an application for the change to EASA and the authority states that the location of the tank is likely to create a cold feet cooling effect to the potential discomfort of passengers seated immediately above it. Uh, This means that insulation panels will need to be fitted between the tank and the cabin floor and these would have to meet burn-through criteria. But Airbus has informed EASA that this is technically not feasible for various reasons. Uh, EASA said that the tank is also potentially vulnerable if exposed to penetration by external fire and, if not adequately protected, might not provide enough time for 
for passengers to evacuate. Uh, EASA has consulted on a proposed special condition uh, to protect cabin occupants from an external pool fire. Now, this is where a fire where fluid has leaked f- uh, to form a pool or reservoir has subsequently ignited. An external pool fire will be such a fire located outside of the passenger cabin or fuel tanks in question, but potentially still inside the aircraft. Well, this condition can be achieved, it says, either through design of the tank itself or supplemental features. But Airbus must demonstrate that the protection is at least as safe as the aircraft's previous design. Uh, Boeing also commented during the consultation highlighting additional safety concerns regarding an integral fuel tank other than the exposure to fire, particularly the protection against structural fracture during during an otherwise survivable runway excursion or landing gear failure. Uh, Airbus is developing the A321XLR from the A321neo airframe and is planning to enter it into service in 2023. So it's quite interesting that Boeing get involved with this as well because they have had previous centre tank incidents as well. True, uh, true. Not of this type of design, but uh, nonetheless they do have some uh, some real real world experience. So uh, interesting. I should I should just add to that actually that uh, uh, for the purposes of it being relatively straightforward to read, an alarming amount of technical stuff has been removed from that particular article so that it could be read out. But obviously, the, all the links to these particular stories will be in the show notes. So uh, if you do want to know the nuts and bolts of what Nev was talking about, they'll be available for you to have a peruse in the show notes uh, when this is released uh, later on in the week. So, Armando, over to you for the next story, and we move over to the US for a story I think will uh, be one that most people will have heard of. Yeah, I think this is a, this is related to, to what Nev just read out, but the US says uh, National Transportation Safety Board is soon going to dismantle this the skeletal reconstruction of the TWA Flight 800. Um, that flight exploded over the Atlantic Ocean about 25 years ago. Um, it was 17 July 1996. Uh, investigators had reassembled a large section of the aircraft in a in a hangar in Calverton, New York. Um, they've used they used all the components that they found from the seafloor there. Um, the a little bit later, the NTSB moved that structure to their training center in Ashburn, Virginia. That's just outside of Washington D.C. That's where it's been for about 20 years, uh, where they've used the the remains of that jet for accident investigation training courses. Funny enough, it's an expiring lease on the site and uh, and some improved investigation models that have made that structure a little bit less relevant than it once was. Um, the uh, NTSB says that advances in investigative techniques such as 3D scanning and drone imagery lessen the relevance of a large-scale reconstruction in teaching modern investigative techniques. Um, so they, they plan on uh, ceasing the use of that facility for training on the 7th of July. Um, For several months after, the NTSB is going to thoroughly document the reconstruction using uh, various 3D scanning techniques, as I just said, Um, and that scanned data will be archived for historical purposes. So the NTSB moved the jet's remains to Ashburns years ago under the condition that was agreed to with the victims' families that it would never turn the structure into a public exhibit. Um, They said that to honor this agreement made with the families, uh, the NTSB will work closely with the federal government contractor to dismantle the reconstruction and destroy that wreckage. If you don't remember, TWA Flight 800 uh, departed New York's JFK on the evening of the 17th of July, bound for Paris. 
it exploded shortly after takeoff, killing all 230 people on board. Um, after a four-year investigation, the NTSB determined that the explosion resu resulted from the ignition of a flammable fuel-air mixture in the center wing fuel tank. Um, the ignition source was likely a short circuit outside that tank that was allowed excessive or the excessive voltage to enter through electrical wiring associated with the fuel quantity indication system. Um, there you go. So that that uh, mishap was very well documented. Uh, numerous, numerous documentaries, including Carlos, your air crash investigations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Series 17, episode four, I think. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can, you can imagine that, that with modern technology, we're, they probably don't need that, that large scale reconstruction anymore. I think at the time, Amanda, if I'm right in saying, I think this was one of the biggest investigations that, that had ever been undertaken by the NTSB. It was, and the, and the location that the aircraft fell was also extremely challenging and one of the um, largest recovery efforts at the time, too. Yeah, John was just saying it's apparently it's the second, um, the second worst aviation crash in its time. But uh, yeah, definitely, I still remember it now. I can still remember, um, to even now, I remember remember the news breaking here in the UK of that. But um, so moving on to the next story. This one comes to us from Bloomberg.com, and uh, for anyone wanting to take up a position as cabin crew uh cathay or pilots or cathay crew to work 21 day stints to avoid quarantine so cathay pacific airways is taking extreme measures to cope with new rules that require flight crews to quarantine in hong kong from this saturday introducing a rotation policy that puts staff out of action for almost one month at a time after they've completed 21 day shifts Enough crew have volunteered, said Cathay spokesperson, without uh, disclosing numbers. The crew who volunteer to take part in the airline's so-called closed-loop plan must isolate at one of Cathay's hotels uh, whenever they return to Hong Kong during their 21-day duty cycle. Once their three-week shift is over, they need to self-isolate for 14 days in a hotel on Hong Kong Island. Uh, they'll then get 14 days off, during which they'll continue to undergo medical surveillance, bringing the full duty cycle to 49 days. Cathay has said the requirement for crew to quarantine could uh, uh, add as much as uh, 52 million US dollars to its monthly cash burn. Uh, the new measures come after Hong Kong extended the mandatory quarantine period for people arriving in the city to 21 days. Under the new shift cycle, crew will need to take COVID-19 tests every time they arrive in Hong Kong, and they may be subjected to more when arriving in countries such as Australia. Uh, there are some exceptions uh, to the quarantine for the crew. Uh, they include flights to and from mainland China, Taiwan and Macau. Uh, some flights with a layover in Alaska and turnaround flights where the crew don't leave the aircraft and no passengers are on board uh, returning to Hong Kong. An internal memo seen by Bloomberg warned that some crew might be required to sign up for, a, uh, for an all of a part of a second 49-day cycle uh, because it's unknown how long Hong Kong's quarantine requirements for flight crew will stay in place. Volunteers will fly mostly cargo only to long-haul destinations as well as passenger flights. 
The crew who don't volunteer will like, most likely uh, operate turnaround cargo flights within single flight duty periods, according to the memo. Cathay flew just 30,410 passengers last month, uh, an average of 981 a day, the first sub-1,000 reading since June. Passenger load factors were 13.3%, a record low, and the airline is particularly exposed to the pandemic as it has no home market to serve while international routes are largely off limits. So what do we think? Uh, comment from Alex in the chat room. How are they going to manage fatigue during 21 days? That's a really good, good point, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is a good question. I don't mm. know. It's, it's going to be a tough one. I think, obviously, with the quarantine, the, the quarantines are in place for a reason, as we know from uh, what's going on here in the UK as well, all across the globe. Um, we need the quarantines to be in place. But I think, you know, with the airlines, they've got to do things, you know, properly. Things have got yeah. to be done very, very much to the uh, to the letter with uh, the airlines. Yeah, I, cer- I certainly don't know how how the aviation regulations work out there, but I know here in the U S and over in Europe, we have very strict, uh, flight hour requirements and flight hour, uh, limitations for seven day periods and 14 day periods. And in the military, we had that too, 30 day period flight hours restrictions. And, um, there are, uh, <laughs> there are definitions on what counts as a crew duty day and being on duty or not. If you're, if they're able to, uh, call you, you're on duty. And if, if you're off duty, they can only call you once before uh, you're considered on duty and not resting. Um, so I, I don't know. I read this article, and I, I guess maybe single people can take the 21 day cycle. But if you're if you're not going to see your your family for 21 days or 49 days, uh, I, you know, we'll, we'll see who how many takers there are on this. Roll roll on the end of June. Uh, Stephen H. in the chat room says probably they can take it in turns to sleep whilst one of them serves the three passengers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, or ten, I mean, or ten to the boxes in the back since they're uh, <laughs> since they're cargo only flights too. Yeah. Nev, yes. uh, moving yeah, the, on to you. Yeah. The uh, the next story. Well, it's uh, it's t- entitled "The Best Airlines in the World 2021." Which is interesting because we've only just started 2020. <laughs> uh, obviously, I expect uh, my airline to be in there right up at the top, I would imagine. But so let's have a look and see what it says. Uh, it says eDreams, one of the uh, one of Europe's largest online travel agency brands, has released the results of its most recent Best Airlines in the World report. The survey has been updated this year to reflect the unique and complicated year faced by travellers and airlines alike during the COVID-19 pandemic. But out of the top 10, the best uh, best airlines for refunds were British Airways with 100% of requests processed in less than a week, Qatar with 100% of requests processed in less than a week, and Delta with 98% of requests processed in less than two weeks. Reliability was judged with cancellation rates and ticket flexibility in mind. And uh, in that area, Qatar, KLM and Turkish Airlines took the top three spots in that category. In the airlines with the most COVID-19 safety measures category, Delta Airlines took that crown. And lastly, customer ratings were taken into account with metrics, including overall experience and value for money, for which all Nippon Airways took the top spot, followed by, followed closely by Qatar 
and Singapore Airlines. And we haven't had a top 10 for ages. I know. (laughs) Without further ado, let's see who are the top 10 best airlines in the world. So in it's uh, Brian Coleman's favourite airline. It is, of course, United Airlines. Yeah, right. Awesome, as I suspected. Uh, number nine <laughs> is uh, Lufthansa. Uh, in at number eight, I have no idea whether it's a new slot or whether it's up or down from last year, but it is Singapore Airways at number eight. I'm sure this next one, number number seven, which is uh, either up or down, uh, number seven is Etihad. <laughs> <laughs> at number six is uh, a, a, a lovely airline I'd love to fly one day is of course Turkish Airways and airline disappointingly airline. only at number five <laughs> is my favourite British Airways or oh, in at number four KLM Royal Dutch Airlines and in at number three all Nippon Airways in Japan Nice. And in at number two, it is the finest airline in the world, is of course Delta Airlines. <laughs> well, apparently not according to this, but at number one is Qatar Airways. Fantastic efforts from that uh, Middle Eastern carrier, and uh, everybody's, you know, has had real difficulties uh, uh, during the last year, but uh, they've all done a top job, I would say. And Absolutely. BA in the top five, Nev. They are, yes. That makes a change, doesn't it? Because so often they're, you know, punted down the list somewhere. But uh, I've got to say that in terms of the way I've been treated by them, in terms of refunds, rebookings, and all the rest of it, uh, yeah. they have done a fantastic job. So yeah, very pleased about that. Yeah, we got our refunds straight away with BA as well, Nev. So yeah, definitely hats off to those guys. Great. Love that. That's how we're now measuring airlines. <laughs> how yeah. great they are yeah, yeah. by cancellations and refunds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, it's, a, it's an unusual step. It's 20, uh, <laughs> that's twenty twenty all over, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Armando, over to you for the last story this week. This is great. Speaking of cancellations, refunds, this is an airline that did not make that top top ten list. So EasyJet <laughs> announced yes uh, the launch of EasyJet flight size. I think it sounds like fun size. Uh, It's a collection of online video lessons to support parents across the nation while homeschooling their young kids. So EasyJet's pilots are presenting a program of online lessons that include elements of basic geography, science, and demystifying the magic of flying just for math. These collects... (laughs) <laughs> this collection of bite-sized video-based lessons for primary school-aged children, uh, ages 7 to 10, is designed to help parents keep kids engaged and entertained at home until at least the 8th of March, when schools are uh, due to reopen, at least in the UK, I believe, right? Um, the video series uses a mixture of animations and pilot tuition uh, tuition <laughs> to help young children understand the scientific principles of flight. I don't know why they didn't just hire Captain Al to do all of this. Because uh, they didn't they want to scar the, a lot of money. They didn't want to scar the children. That's what. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> As Al's children can attest to. Yeah, well, quite. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So each of these videos uh, contain related activities and challenges for these children to try at home, including making paper airplanes, drawing, identifying Yay. cloud formations, practicing uh, practicing pilot announcements. Oh, I like that one. And drawing detailed maps of their hometowns. So when school lessons are able to return to the classroom, EasyJet will be launching a virtual pilot school 
visit program to inspire the next generation of pilots. This program is a continuation of the airline's successful uh, Amy Johnson initiative, which is focused on encouraging more girls to become airline pilots. Uh, and I think Matt, we've got a video. Yeah, we're, we're just going to play a little. We're going to play a little minutes worth of, of the video. Let's let's see what everybody thinks. Hello, I'm Captain Iris. Hello, I'm Captain Bridge. And we are pilots with EasyJet. You may have wondered how planes fly especially as they weigh up to 500 tons. That's the equivalent of 250 elephants. And we all know elephants can't fly. They don't have passports. In order for a plane to fly, it needs four things. Wings, that's kind of obvious. Thrust, that's the engines that propel it forward. Air, the movement of the air over the shape of the wings creates a lift that makes it leave the ground. And drag, changing the force of the air to slow the plane down. Try this experiment. Hold a piece of paper like this see the curve just like a wing and now gently blow on the top and see how it lifts up let's look at those elements again no i said elements the wings are thicker at the front and thinner at the back which makes the air move faster over the wings anyway Trust. you get the idea let's guys i mean the, it's a great it's a great little video isn't it actually Oh, I was getting into that. Yeah. Well, next week we've got uh, we've got Matt and Andy on from the A320 podcast. So uh, uh, perhaps this is their new training. Uh, uh, right, it might you know, be. Yeah. Video <laughs> they're using. Yeah. Yeah. Lots well, of, just uh, think of how much time Rory could have saved by just watching these videos instead uh, of sitting right. at home for All that money as well. Gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how they'll feel about that, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> Oh, dear, what a lot of fun. Liked it. Like it a lot. <laughs> Alex Robinson in the chat room says, wait, planes need wings? I know. Shocking, isn't it? Yeah. You'll be telling, you'll be telling us next that if they run out of fuel, that they, they, they will need, they'll fall out of the sky. Was it, <laughs> was it CNN or someone like <laughs> yeah. that where I saw that on the, on, yeah. on the news wires? That made it me was laugh. a story. Yeah, it breaking story, news, yeah. everyone, yeah. <laughs> Breaking news: yeah. When if an aircraft runs out of fuel, it, it, it will fall a out of the sky. Yeah, yeah if a triple seven runs out of fuel, mm. it will fall from the sky. I mean, oh. I think to be fair, I, I don't think it would matter whether it was a triple seven or an A three eighty. I mean, oh, you know, dude. it's just like, yeah. Anyway, we digress slightly. <laughs> oh, we've got uh, we, <laughs> right. Okay, good point well made by Graham Haley in the chat room there. But how on earth do rockets fly? I think it's a very good point. They don't have wings. <laughs> Ask Nev. He drives a rocket, don't you? Nev? Right. Okay. Uh, speaking of rockets, did you guys see there was another UFO sighting? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll cover that next week. It looked. They said it looked like a, a, a large cylindrical rocket. Yeah. There was a good bit of ATC actually with that as well. Yeah. Was yeah. there? Okay. Well, anyway, absolutely fascinating. Maybe we'll come back to that next week. Uh, we'll be right back after this short message. If you want to improve your 737 knowledge, why not attend one of our live technical refresher courses? These two-day webinars are not just a Zoom call, nor are they just an instructor stood in front of a whiteboard. Our professional production team in their London studio uses the latest technology to bring you a fully interactive and engaging experience. Ask your instructor questions live at any time. For more information and to sign up, visit 737lounge.com. Well, I love it. We've just learned in the last 34 seconds, three out of the five of us have actually just been watching these 737 <laughs> lounge videos today. Oh, well, there we are. 
<laughs> yeah. Good to know. Guys, Good so to- listen, despite your best effort to kick me off the entire first half of the show, I still managed to show up. <laughs> <laughs> I still managed to show up for the best part of the show with system military. So if you guys are willing to have me for another nine minutes, wow. Matt, hit the button. <laughs> We're going to quote this, uh, this part of the film, The Three Amigos, where he goes into uh, send a telegram and he's going to say, I'm going to give you the, the $2 version, the abridged version. <laughs> so this first story comes to us from thedrive.com. I've been talking about this for probably two years since I've been on the show, at least the Air Force's light attack aircraft program. The Air Force finally took delivery of its first Beechcraft AT-6E Wolverine single engine turboprop light attack aircraft. The aircraft said that in the past, uh, it could acquire up to three of these aircraft to support a program called the Airborne Extensible Relay Over the Horizon Network, or Aeronet, uh, focusing on developing a low-cost communications and data sharing architecture to help allies and partners work together better during coalition operations. That's it. No, that didn't mean anything. Really, like Nev, I think you, you probably just blanked over that. Um, so this uh, this AT6 that the Air Force just received. It's actually an airplane that uh, is configured for light attack and intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or ISR missions. Um, the uh, Army, the Navy, the Air Force all operate the AT-6 te- Texan, uh, Texan II, sorry. Um, and uh, this particular aircraft, they've loaded all kinds of uh, communications equipment on it. We talked a little bit about this when we were talking about bacon. Right and how important communications mm-hmm. are in the air, in the air. Right, so everybody loves bacon. This is eh, like a mini bacon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're gonna we're gonna try to fit bacon in. Uh, well, sorry, military bacon in in every single show from now on. Um, but let's see. <laughs> um, th- this program was canceled. The light attack aircraft pro- program. Uh, it, there's this whole thing back between the Super Tucano, the AT6. There was a couple other air- airplanes involved in that and uh, their company Sierra Nevada Corporation or SNC is still up in the air with the Air Force Special Operations Command which kind of has its own funding pot with Joint Special Operations Command uh, to see if there's going to be a future for the uh, either the AT-6 Texan or the A-29 Super Chicano but either way at least they've got one anyways that pretty much <laughs> sums up that story <laughs> Can I just say, I saw one of these at the first Dubai show I went to, and it was freaking awesome. It's one hell of an aircraft to see up close, especially when it's got all the underwing pylons full. Oh, so, so I, I know we're trying to move on, but Carlos, do you remember the old T-37, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Cessna T-37 tweet? Yeah. It was a training aircraft. It was the first airplane that most uh, Air Force pilots would see. When 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 they turned that into a uh, an A-32 a37 dragonfly and put it all the weapons on the pylons and the hard points it looked so mean and i watched the colombians do some pretty crazy things with this and that that's the same thing with this this is usually a trainer aircraft put all kinds of guns and bombs on it and it's gonna just go wreak havoc somewhere pretty cool there 
I, I, I hate to sort of burst your bubble here, though, Armando. I have a sneaking suspicion that Nev still has absolutely no clue what on earth <laughs> you're, you're, what on earth. You're. Nev, uh, uh, any of that you'd like to recall? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no. And moving on. I'm not allowed on the military section usually. <laughs> well, there we are. So this next story, this next story, which um, Nev has chosen. Uh, comes to us from airforcemag.com. Uh, Air Mobility Command to start integrating KC-46 into limited operations. Uh, the Air Force's next generation tanker is starting to go operational, but in a very limited way, with the goal of freeing up older planes for combat missions. Air Mobility Command, or AMC, announced February the 24th it's phasing the KC-46 into operations by making it available to the U.S. Transportation Command for tasks that would otherwise be filled by KC-135s and KC-10s based on what Pegasus has been cleared to do. For example, this could be U.S.-based fueling of certain aircraft and possible overseas coronet missions to deploy fighters that use its centerline drogue system, such as the FA-18. Uh, uh, Air, Mobility, uh, Air Mobility Command boss General Jacqueline D. Van Ovost. <laughs> said during the Air Force Association... <laughs> John in my ear, thank you for that. <laughs> during the Air Force Association Virtual Aerospace Warfare Symposium that the goal is to relieve stress on the other tankers which have been in high demand for overseas combat deployments and to support exercise training at home. Shouldn't have got rid of the TriStars then, should they? Anyway, uh, they said she said that we will now commit the KC-46 to execute missions similar to the ones they've been conducting over the past few years in operational test and evaluation plan, but can now include operational taskings from U.S. Transportation Command. For example, today the KC-46 may provide aerial refueling for F-16s participating in a U.S.-based training exercise. Under this new approach, if uh, the Air Mobility Command is on the uh, is tasked to provide AR support for operational coronet missions to move F-18s overseas or an operational B-52 mission, the KC-46 is on the table, which frees up the KC-135 and KC-10s to execute other combatant command deployments that the KC-46A is presently unable to support with its existing defences. This is a rather long story, isn't it, guys? And carrying on, there are strict limitations to the plan. That's actually a good, that's probably a good point to stop, actually, Carlos. It does go on and on, but, you know, I can just summarize it. It's still got problems. It was problem plague. They've mm. demoed it. I'm just glad that they've, I think they've received about 44 of them so far. And uh, they got to do something with them. So at least they're saying that they, they can take on some limited operational roles. They're not going to go into combat, but... Hey, there's a lot of flying to be done that isn't combat-oriented. Like I said, they shouldn't have got mm. rid of the Tri-Stars at uh, over at um, Bruntonport. All those refueling tankers sitting there. Oh, well. Yeah, well, you never know. These KC-46s might end up right next to those Tri-Stars <laughs> before very long. KC-10s. You know, the, God, the KC-10 is like 400 years old. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I think we could probably finish up with Nev here. Nev, his he, favorite part of the show. Actually, one of this is one yes. of Jonathan, Jonathan Warner's favorite aircraft. Carry well, on. I've also had to just uh, move the the font size up from about six <laughs> to eleven. <laughs> so that I can... 
even read it. Read it. <laughs> I know that people are trying to trip me up here, left, right and centre. However, it does say on the aviationist.com website that US Air Force B-1B Lancer bombers have just arrived at Orland Air Station in Norway. Uh, four of these uh, aircraft from the 7th Bomb Wing at Dias Air Force Base, Texas, have been deployed to Norway as part of a bomber task force mission. Flying as taboo flight and supported by tankers from Peace Air Force Base, New Hampshire, and RAF Mildenhall here in the UK, the B-1s have arrived at Orland Force Station in Norway, an important uh, air base operated by the Royal Norwegian Air Force. The, station, the air station name is the home of the Royal Norwegian Air Force F-35 main operating base and the ho also hosts search and rescue hop uh, helicopters and a forward operating location of the NATO E-3A AWACS fleet. Noteworthy, as explained in the article published when the deployment was announced, whilst the uh, strategic uh, bomber missions had provided theatre familiarisation for aircrew members and opportunities for US integration with NATO allies and regional partners since 2018, the deployment marks the first time US bombers operated out of Norway. In fact, on, the, uh, on May the 20th last year, uh, two B-1B Lancers from the 28th Bomb Wing, Ells uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, conducted a mission to the Nordic region. Uh, that mission, one in a series of long-range strategic bomber task force missions to Europe, was worthy of note for at least a couple of interesting details. First, it marked the first time B-1s flew over Sweden to integrate with Swedish Gripens whilst conducting close air, uh, close air support training with the Swedish Joint Attack uh, Controller ground teams at Vizdal range. Secondly, uh, the B-1s integrated with the Royal Norwegian Air Force F-35s to fly tactical sorties uh, and contact a low approach over Orland Air Station Norway, uh, which was the home of the uh, Royal Norwegian Air Force recently operation North uh, F-35 fleet. Uh, upon arrival in Norway, all US, uh, USF uh, po uh, personnel were sc screened prior to departure uh, or immediately practiced a 10-day COVID restriction of movement. Uh, in the meanwhile, the uh, US Air Force has just kicked off the plan to divest uh, 17 B-1B aircraft from the current fleet of 62 Lancers, leaving 45 in the active fleet in accordance with the National Defence uh, Authorisation Act. Uh, the first aircraft flew to the boneyard of the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group at Davis Moncton uh, Air Force Base in Texas on February the 17th of this year. Of the 17 B-1 aircraft, four will be required to remain in a reclaimable condition that is consistent with Type 2000 recallable storage. In other words, they can be resurrected uh, as, for instance, uh, which has been done with the B-52s when required. Wow. Great job, Nev. I, I think it's safe to say it's probably just as well that you and I, Nev, are both on Macs because when people interfere with the story while you're reading it, the great thing about being on the Mac is it doesn't update while you're, at, while you're reading it out, which is uh, great it news. It does update when you're reading. Oh, and, does it? Uh, yes. Luckily, <laughs> for the legal department programme, I was able to. Uh, oh, very good. Okay. Oh, All right. Uh, what was that? What was that movie that said, who put the question mark in there? <laughs> <laughs>
you did a you did a fine job, Nev. This is important because it's not very easy to move a flock of B ones anywhere outside of already established bases. So the fact that they're operating up in Norway and uh, operating jointly with the Norwegian Air Force. Um, is uh, it's a pretty big step forward. Mm. So Mr. Warner's not happy. He's not happy. No, he's uh, not happy. What is he? I figured that when this story made the news, uh, he'd be buying a plane ticket over to Norway to just get some great pictures of. This no, guy. he's adamant they should be still be at Fairford. <laughs> yeah, or should be. At no, Fairford, they'll be I back guess. to Fairford. I'm, I'm a hundred percent positive. It's nah. just temporary. It'll pass. Jonathan, be fine. <laughs> he'll be very relieved to hear them i'm sure <laughs> they'll come back to you <laughs> well, they, well they won't be at Riyadh, that's for sure because that's been canceled. well no there, yeah. there is that yeah. okay <laughs> wow okay uh we're sort of running out of time tonight guys it's time to wrap up it certainly is don't forget to uh if you don't already uh subscribe to us or look for us on social medias don't forget we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for us on there, Plain Talking UK. Don't forget as well that WhatsApp number. If you want to send us in a picture or a message or even a video, uh, you can put your picture on the green screen behind me, Matt, or even Nev. Uh, send it into plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Uh, email the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. We'd love some feedback from you guys. So if you're listening to the audio show or watching now, we'd love to hear from you, what you've been up to, what's your kind of uh, flying doing, if you're doing any flying at all during this uh, mm. period. Uh, send your emails in to us. And also don't forget to check out our website, all w's.plaintalkinguk.com. On there you'll find the links to Patreon if you want to become a patron of the show. We would love that very much indeed. We have a really great Patreon uh, team of people who help to uh, help us to push the show along every mm. week, including our PayPal donators as well. All the links are on there. There's also a shop. You can click on the shop icon and grab yourself a PTUK T-shirt. Uh, hopefully one will be landing in Australia very soon to one of our listeners. And you can also get a PTUK mug, which uh, you can drink anything out of, really. It's not just yeah. a coffee mug. You yeah. can drink a, a scotch if you like and uh, they, armando will probably do that yeah the, the limited, to that. The, yeah absolutely the limited edition ones uh we are working on uh by the way also actually you're saying for a listener feedback and that we've got a a great uh, video involving um gliding coming up very shortly uh that has been sent to me by Stephen, which i haven't had chance to do much with but uh looking forward to sort of sharing that with everyone actually and that's over at his gliding club so that's going to be a uh, worth sort of i'm looking forward to sharing that with you very soon but uh, and lastly yeah. if you are shopping if you're going to be buying oh, yes. cat food this weekend or your, your USB plug in the wall, please take yourselves to our website as well where there is a link to Amazon, which you can do your shopping through. It doesn't cost you a penny, but it does give us a small referral fee for if you make a purchase on there. So please do feel free to use that as I did today. You'll mm. be pleased to know, Matt. Indeed. Anyway, don't forget as well our guest, Rory, who was fantastic on the show tonight. Rory on air. You can find him over on YouTube, Rory on Air. Just search him on YouTube, or you can go to his website, www.roryorscary.com. That's A U S K E dot com. And you can also find uh, Rory on Air on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Rory Oscary on there as well. We'll put all the links in the show notes just in case you missed that one. Indeed. There we go. 
<laughs> oh yes, yeah. next week's show. Oh, this is another good one. Uh, you remember our chums uh, Matt and Andy from the A320 podcast. Both of them are joining us uh, next Friday at seven o'clock. So that'll be uh, great stuff. And we'll, I'll ask them what they think of that uh, EasyJet uh, video as well. Perhaps <laughs> they, uh, might be interesting. I'll leave it in the playout system to sort of remind yeah, them in case they absolutely. haven't seen it. <laughs> there we go. Ah, uh, well. Yes, uh, so uh, uh, Dr. Steph, what's coming up uh, on the 12th, just out of curiosity? Yeah. Hey, y'all put me on the spot there. So we're going to do our uh, Women in Aviation podcast that day. And actually, I think you guys have all the, the details. I have, or I'm have. i just here for uh, the planning meeting. So right, yes, yes. Just to remind me who all's going to be there and what, what I'm doing. So yeah. I'm prepared. That's right. there's, there's nothing <laughs> like throwing someone. Yeah, let's just throw somebody and under a bus. That's clearly the way. Dr. Steph! Yeah. Our viewer numbers just went up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, we've got four and a half million people watching. Wow, now. very exciting. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's, got, she's got such a following, my goodness. <laughs> There we and go. We're not we're worthy. Be here just we're not anyway, if we could just be serious for a very brief moment and just say that uh, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, John, if you could just remind me in my ear what the date is of our very special show. It's the 12th of March, uh, which is basically literally a couple. Of, I can't believe that like on Monday we are into March already. Where on earth did February go? I, I genuinely don't know. Um, 12th of but, March, uh, so we need to get yeah. our beer and popcorn order in. We do, absolutely. Yes, a very special show is coming up, uh, which is why Steph is here for a, for a, a, a planning meeting, uh, because we won't be here, basically. Uh, we're handing over taking the reins. Over. <laughs> yeah. Megan and I are taking over. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, a certain uh, Mrs. Armando uh, will be... Uh, t- that's, that's really derogatory. I take that back. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's got her own name, Matt. Her name's Megan. Yes, okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Sorry. Armando's boss. Yes, absolutely. I'm really more Mr. Megan than she yes, is that's that. Armando. Yes. <laughs> So like that. Yeah. that is where we are going to bring episode number 357 of the Plain Talking UK pod- uh, podcast. To Bless you. Bless me. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's joined us tonight in the YouTube chat room. He's had a bit of a hard week, guys. That's right. (laughs) Matt is true. That's right. Um, Thanks to all our audio listeners as well. Don't forget, if you are listening to an audio show of this podcast, please do give us a rating on whatever app you do do your downloading through. So big thanks to uh, all the uh, people on the show tonight, including... Matt over in the studio for all his hard work this evening, as always. Big thanks to Nev for all his all glorious hard work, as always. Big thanks to Armando for bringing us the military segment and keeping Nev in check. And also a massive thanks as well to John, who does all our production work in the background while we're all sleeping here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that just leaves me to say... From me, Carlos, here in my home studio. From Matt in the PTUK Master Suite studios. From Nev in his glorious Buckinghamshire studios. And from Armando in his glorious Charlotte studios. Have a great weekend. Take care, everyone. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.